Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 2021 Kidney Disease and You uh, You and How to Be You How to Be Kidney Disease Free Conference. I am your host, Tafaro Cook. Hi, I am a two-time kidney transplant recipient who thrived and survived on dialysis for over a decade. While on dialysis, I own my own fitness studio and and personal trained and operated the business. I started fitness programs in the dialysis unit to help patients stay healthy while waiting for a life-saving organ. <clears throat> now I own kidney, sorry about that. Now I am the founder of Kidney Care Coaches, where we coach stage three to stage five kidney disease patients. I am a father, I am married and I'm a father of two. I enjoy exercising, traveling, reading, and working on classic cars. Now I'd like to <clears throat> um, uh, like to introduce to collaborators my good friend Jonathan Jonathan Trailer Hope with Jonathan. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey guys, I'm Jonathan Trailer. I'm a 15 month kidney transplant recipient, uh, host of the Hope with Jonathan podcast, where we share stories of hope. I based uh, my podcast uh, started my podcast Hope with Jonathan based on my near death experience. Uh, with kidney failure back in July of 2019. Uh, we uh, we interview patients that are in need and give them a platform to uh, share their warrior story. We also uh, spread uh, awareness for kidney disease and talk about dialysis, transplant. And uh, I collaborate with uh, great people like uh, Tafaro Cook and uh, Philip Harris Jones from A Second Chance. So thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. We appreciate that. Now I'd like you to introduce to you Philip Jones Jr. from Second Chance Podcast. Hi, Philip. Hello, everyone. I appreciate you guys for being with us today. My name is Philip Jones Jr. I'm in Los Angeles, California. I am a kidney transplant recipient, um, UCLA in 2010. Um, but I am also currently looking for any. Um, I suffered from uh, post-strep at age of four that caused my kidneys to fail and only work at 30% to the age of 16, which caused me to then go to dialysis. Um, as I mentioned, I did get my transplant uh, six months later and then rejected three years later, which led me down a path of, which seems like destruction uh, because of another, a number of health issues that I dealt with after that. So, um, at that, at about five or six years later, I decided to, you know, let stop letting kidney disease, you know, rule my life. I went back to school, got my degree, um, and after that, in, on March first, twenty twenty one, I started a second chance show, uh, who I now hosted with Mr. Cook here, um, and we basically highlight people and their stories of fight through a number of situations that they've had to go through. So. Uh, it's a great thing these these two gentlemen and these wonderful professionals, and we appreciate you all being here today. Thank you. Thank you, fellow. We appreciate that. Now, <clears throat> I want to introduce all the presenters, and we're going to let them introduce themselves. I'm just going to say their names and let them tell a little bit about themselves. We're going to start with Sally Treyor. Hi, Sally. How are you doing today? I don't know. Are you muted? You You're hear? mute, Sally. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, great. Yes. Hi, everyone. Good, good. Tell us about yourself. 
Uh, so uh, that's like such a loaded question, but uh, <laughs> I am a two-time kidney transplant recipient, the most recent one being last November 7th. So I'm like three or four days away from my one-year anniversary for my second kidney transplant. I'm so excited. Um, but my kidney disease journey began when I was 15 years old. Um, my kidneys failed and they couldn't figure out why. And it was essentially just deemed malformed kidneys, kidneys that just didn't develop as I began growing. Um, so at 15, I spent four years on dialysis um, and then got transplanted at 19 and was lucky that that transplant lived and helped me thrive for 15 years, allowed me to go to college, which was a lifelong dream and um, pursuing, really discovering my passion for people. I wanted to care for people and because I had had such a difficult time with medications as a teenager, my obsession with pharmacy began at that point in time and wanting to help other people since I could really relate to what some of the negative thought process that would go through your mind to make you not wanna take care of your body, especially as a teenager. Um, I am now a clinical specialist as a pharmacist in Maryland. I, my practice focused primarily in ambulatory setting and helping people that have heart failure, hypertension, and diabetes figure out how to meet their health goals and stay out of the hospital. Um, and I am super passionate about just increasing medication access to people that are underserved and underrepresented. But that's it. Thank you, Sally. And I appreciate you for helping me get my medications also. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Um, now I want to introduce Dr. Brookins. Hi, Dr. Brookins. How are you today? Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Dr. Brookins, and I am a nephrologist in Georgia. And my company is Remote Renal Care. So we provide virtual kidney care throughout all of Georgia. So although I'm physically located in Augusta, Georgia, I service patients throughout all of Georgia. This idea started, um, I developed remote renal care in 2018 when I realized patients traveling in from rural parts of Georgia would take an hour or sometimes even more just to get their kidney care. So out of that, I started Remote Renal Care, where we focus just on the rural parts of Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, I went to medical school at Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. I did my internal medicine residency training in my hometown of Jacksonville, Florida, the University of Florida. And then I just couldn't get enough of Nashville. So I went back for my kidney training at Vanderbilt. And um, from there, relocated to Augusta, Georgia. So thank you guys for having me on and I look forward to tonight's um, event. Thank you so much, Dr. Brookins. That's an awesome story. Great. Good job. Thank you. For, we're, we're truly happy to have you. Now I want to introduce Dr. Dale Geff. Hi, Dr. Dale Geff. I worked with you a couple of times already and it's good seeing you again. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Great to see you guys. Thanks for having me. Um, first of all, Dr. Brookins, congratulations on the Braves recent uh, World Series. I actually am a huge Braves fan because my I have an uncle who lives in Georgia. So I grew up going there all the time. Um, it's uh, Thanks again for having me, guys. It's great to be here. Um, I'm a cardiologist out here in Los Angeles. 
at Cedar Sinai Medical Center, and um, I grew up. I grew up here in LA. Um, actually, went to uh, college on the East Coast, but then went to medical school in Israel, where I'm originally from, where I was born, uh, and then came back here to uh, to Cedar Sinai. Um, I actually do uh, general cardiology as well as uh, advanced heart failure and heart transplant. So my relationship with the kidney and the kidney teams over here, uh, nephrologists, but especially the kidney transplant team uh, is very, very close. I would say almost on a daily basis, I'm in touch with the uh, renal transplant team, either clearing patients to go for renal transplant or uh, patients that need a heart and kidney transplant, which which we do a, a fair number of. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, as we'll talk about, you know, the heart and kidney is so linked that uh, pretty much any patient I have, um, you know, we, we focus a lot on their on their renal function as well. Um, but uh, I, I really commend you guys for, for, the, for what you do. And these things are, are amazing programs affecting so many people. Uh, it's really great. Well, thank here. you so much for having uh, being with us, and we appreciate you as also. Um, so our next presenter is uh, Kelsey Reed. Now Kelsey's not here at the moment, but I do have her bio, and I'm just going to read it a little bit and tell everybody about her, and then we'll be playing a recording from her talking about nutrition. <clears throat> Kelsey Reed is a RDN LDN. She's a registered dietitian uh, nutritionist who specializes in kidney nutrition. Kelsey owns CDK Nutrition, a private practice aimed to help those with chronic kidney disease live their best life. She lives in Philadelphia area, but works with clients from all over the country. Kelsey helps those with CDK improve their kidney function. She also believes that you can still eat the foods you love when you have CDK. Check out her Instagram, her TikTok, or her free Facebook group to learn more tips and tricks for living your best life with CDK. So now we'll play her recording. One second. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me today. My name is Kelsey Reed. I am a kidney dietitian, and today I'm going to talk to you about diabetes. And this is so important because, as you all know, eating for your kidneys is not easy. It can be stressful. It can be overwhelming. But today we're going to simplify it so that it's a breeze. Over here, you will see a little bit of, about me. My name is Kelsey. Like I said, I live in the city of brotherly love. I live in Philadelphia, and I absolutely love The Office. That's one of my favorite shows, so I wanted to share a little bit about me. Um, I do work with clients from all over the country, which is really nice, so I'm not just limited to the Philadelphia area or 
state of Pennsylvania. And just as a disclaimer, as a registered dietitian, I cannot give medical advice. I provide guidelines in this presentation, but they are not specific to your individual needs. So if you are interested in working with a dietitian to learn your specific needs for your kidney disease, then please do so or consult your doctor. So why is kidney disease so hard to eat for? That's because a lot of times when you are first diagnosed with kidney disease, you're not given a whole lot of support or guidance from your doctor or healthcare team, right? I've heard it so many times. Just drink water, just limit your salt intake, you'll be fine. And you're like, wait, what? There has to be more that I can do. Um, so you, you research, you Google, you look all over the place and you find out that there's so much conflicting information, right? It is not easy. It's one of the hardest things to do. So tonight we are going to talk about how to eat for your kidneys and what that looks like to protect your kidneys when you have CKD. Have you all heard of a whole foods plant-based diet? This is something that I work on with all of my clients. This is one of the main things that you can do for your kidney disease to improve your kidney function and protect your kidneys for life. A whole foods plant-based diet is a diet where you are focusing on plant-based foods. So foods like fruits, vegetables, beans, legumes, and more plant-based sources of protein, but you're also focusing on less processed foods. And we're going to dive into why it is so beneficial and why it's recommended. It can be a little tricky at first because the name itself just sounds so pretty, but it's really a lot easier than it sounds, and I'm going to show you how. So I'm sure you've all heard of these nutrients. Sodium, protein, potassium, and phosphorus. There are many different nutrients, vitamins, and minerals that are important for our overall health, but these are the top four that are important for CKD or kidney disease. And the number two that I'm going to talk about now are protein and sodium, and those are the top two that are recommended to focus on to help support your kidney disease and protect your kidneys for life. Now, like I said, eating for your kidneys can be really intimidating, really overwhelming and stressful, but it's so important because you need to know how to protect your kidneys for life, how to improve your kidney function to prevent things like dialysis and needing a transplant. So that is why we're talking about it. So protein, we all know where protein comes from, eggs, chicken, fish, beef, lamb, pork, um, nuts, even seeds, dairy products, milk, yogurt, cheese, and protein is a nutrient that's very important for health, but it does need to be limited when it comes to kidney disease. I'm sure some of you have heard of having protein in your urine. Protein can actually leak out into the urine and that can be a sign of kidney disease sometimes. So working with a kidney dietitian is important to determine how much protein needs to be restricted. And this really depends on your weight, your labs, and your medical history. So that's why I always recommend working with a dietitian so you know exactly how much protein you need because no one's kidney disease is the same and no one's protein recommendation is the same. 
limiting protein, especially animal protein, is key for protecting your kidneys. And this is one of the main points that I want to drive home today. In order to prevent further kidney damage and to protect your kidneys forever, you are going to want to limit your protein and especially limit animal protein. And the reason for this is because protein puts a lot of stress on the kidneys. So when your kidneys are functioning normally, protein's not a problem for them. But when your kidneys aren't functioning normally and you have kidney disease, that protein can build up and put a lot of pressure, a lot of stress on the kidneys. So that is why it's so important to limit the stress that we put on the kidneys. And we take away some of that overwhelm from that protein. So limiting protein is gonna be really important. I work with so many clients from all over the country and limiting protein is the first thing that we talk about and especially limiting animal protein. And once you start limiting animal protein, you see the protein in your urine start to decrease. You also see your kidney function start to improve, which is really awesome. So protein is anything that comes from an animal. So eggs, fish, chicken, milk, yogurt, whatever it might be from an animal. Again, this puts more stress on the kidneys, so limiting these is, is really key when it comes to managing kidney disease. Plant-based proteins are like nuts, seeds, beans, legumes. Including these is really important for a whole foods plant-based diet to take away some of the stress from the kidneys and help improve your kidney function. Remember, portion size is key. Just because you were eating a more plant-based diet does not mean that you are going to naturally get more protein, right? Plant-based foods still have protein in them, just like beans, nuts, and seeds, and legumes. So you still want to watch your portion size, but it's so important to work with the dietitian. The next nutrient that is really important for protecting your kidneys is sodium. I'm sure you've heard this a million times. Limiting sodium is key because sodium affects your blood pressure. And high blood pressure is one of the number one causes of kidney disease and further kidney damage. So limiting sodium and controlling your blood pressure is going to be really helpful for your CKD. So sodium is going to be found in salt and salty foods. We do need sodium, so you don't want to cut it out completely, but typically restrictions are going to be about 2,300 milligrams per day. But again, working with a dietitian is going to be key to know exactly what you need. So I get this a lot from people saying, well, if I need 2,300 milligrams a day, then I can't have any snacks or I can only have one meal because that adds up so quickly. So I wanted to show you how to balance out your sodium throughout the day to make it easy. So if you're going to have three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and maybe one to two snacks throughout the day, aiming for about 500 to 700 milligrams of sodium per meal is going to be important, as well as aiming for about 200 milligrams of sodium per snack. And this is going to be a perfect way to balance out your sodium throughout the day and make sure you're sticking to that 2300 milligram sodium restriction. I'm sure you've all seen Mrs. Dash. Now it's just a dash. Um, and these are amazing salt-free seasonings that are totally kidney friendly. And you may have heard about some other seasonings that are not kidney friendly. Those are called salt substitutes. So 
these are not salt substitutes. These are just herbs and spices that are blended together to make really great flavors. So I always recommend adding these to foods instead of table salt or garlic salt, things like that, because they're gonna have extra sodium in them. So these are gonna be zero milligrams of sodium. So they will not add to your sodium limit for the day. My favorite is the chicken and the garlic and herb. They're so good on veggies and potatoes. So types of foods, as we know, fast food, canned foods, lunch meat, pickles, even bread can be a really high one with sodium, soy sauce, and lots of packaged processed foods. Potassium is another big one. Now, please, please keep in mind that not everyone with kidney disease needs to limit potassium. This is why working with a kidney dietitian is so important because actually a lot of times potassium can be protective for your kidneys. So sometimes people with kidney disease need more potassium to help their kidneys function better. So we all need potassium, but everyone needs different amounts depending on your labs, your medical history, and your medication. So again, please work with your doctor or dietitian to know how much you need for body and kidney disease. I think it's that people need to limit potassium when it comes to kidney disease, but that's just not always the case. Some high potassium foods that you want to be aware of are lots of fruits and vegetables like bananas, orange juice, mangoes, potatoes, avocados, but also animal products do have potassium in it. So chicken, dairy, beef, fish, beans even, as well as nuts. Phosphorus, this is another big nutrient that you want to be aware of when you have kidney disease because making sure your phosphorus is well within control is going to be important to protect your kidneys for the long run. So Phosphorus is a mineral that's found mainly in your teeth and your bones, but not everyone with kidney disease needs to limit phosphorus. So knowing your phosphorus labs is really important and your restriction depends on your labs. There are different types of phosphorus. So I always recommend knowing this and keeping this in mind when you're choosing your foods. We talked about how a whole foods plant-based diet is the best way to go for kidney disease but really that's because a lot of the times those phosphate additives is what we call them they are going to be found in a lot of processed foods and here's why that's an issue phosphate additives are additives that are added to foods to help stabilize them preserve them and add flavor but this phosphate added to foods can also build up in your bloodstream and lead to high phosphorus levels. And when you have kidney disease, high phosphorus levels can be really dangerous. So avoiding the phosphate additives that you see here that are 90 to 100% absorbed in the body are gonna be really important. Whereas the phosphorus in nuts and seeds, bread and animal products is not gonna be as well absorbed. So you mainly want to focus on that absorption of the phosphorus additives to avoiding more processed foods. This is going to be lots of, you know, dark colored sodas, french fries, lunch meat, and hot dogs. 
Now, when it comes to water, water is another big one when it comes to protecting your kidneys. Actually, increasing your water intake can actually help your kidneys function better, which is incredible. And water is one of those things that's so easy to do. Now, again, you will want to work with your doctor or dietitian to know how much water you actually need in a day. But typically, it depends on the person, it depends on your labs, as well as your medical history and medications. You likely need more water than you think, but water is also going to be really key in protecting your kidneys. So the main things you want to focus on when you are following a more whole food plant-based diet is to focus on limiting your protein, specifically animal protein, watching your sodium intake, be mindful of potassium and phosphorus if you need to based on your labs and increasing your water intake. You're also going to want to stay away from more processed foods because those have more phosphate additives and sodium in them. Um, they're also going to a lot of times have more uh, protein as well. So that is why choosing less processed foods and a more whole foods diet is so beneficial. Fruit and veggies are key kidney disease. If you'd like to find some more information about protecting your kidneys, the American Kidney Fund and National Kidney Foundation have awesome resources. Chronometer is a food journal app, kind of like MyFitnessPal, that you can use to track your food and see how much protein, potassium, phosphorus, sodium, everything you need a day. And Food Data Central from the USDA website can help you know how much you're actually getting from certain foods for particular nutrients like protein, potassium, and phosphorus. And if you're interested in following me on social media for more tips and tricks, you can um, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or join my free Facebook group, CKD Nutrition Free Community, or you can also find me on TikTok. Thanks so much. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Even though you're not here, we appreciate your uh, input. That was really good. One thing I like what she said was, and this is what I work with people, um, the different types of phosphors. You know, like I said, when you get those uh, phosphors, you know, you're when you when you eat like potato chips and things like that, you get 100% of those phosphors, opposed to when you eat a plant-based diet, you know, those are, that's what we call natural phosphors. And that makes a big difference on how your body uh, reacts to that. You know, I noticed when uh, I went more plant-based, I didn't even have to use as much uh, phospho in my binders as much. But when I ate uh, foods that were um, refined carbohydrates and stuff out of a box, I had to take my binders all the time because I see my phosphorus go up tremendously. And one thing I had, like, I, I, I like to exercise a lot. So my bones were hurt tremendously, man, when my phosphorus got high. So I just wanted to say that, that I'm glad she, she said uh, the different types of phosphorus and how our body absorbs it. So I like that a lot. That's very important. Yeah. And I enjoy what she says, too. Uh, she's always offering some great advice, also giving you some alternatives, uh, you know, for people that do go out to eat. She's always giving... Uh, you know, the kidney uh, diet, uh, the, the kidney, uh, keeping the ki kidney diet in mind when you're going out to eat and right. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. She gives you options and things that you can uh, look at. So uh, definitely appreciate Kelsey for uh, her information. If you guys, if you guys haven't already uh, followed her over there on Instagram and 
her pages and stuff. Definitely uh, look her up across the board on social media. She's a uh, she's awesome. Right, and uh, like um, again, we'll be. I think Phil and I will be uh, interviewing her. I believe the 18th, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, if you guys have any questions for her, for Kelsey, you can leave them in the chat, and we'll give her those questions on the 18th on our our show, uh, Second Chance Podcast. Absolutely. Okay, so going forward. We're going to yeah, talk she'll about, be uh, speaking on. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say she'll be speaking on shopping uh, with CD, CKD. Okay. Uh, she's going to tell you, you know, how to shop, how to read labels, how to, you know, certain vegetables and things like that uh, that you want to go get as you're shopping. And the reason why I took up on that because she had the. Uh, two different subjects, the one that we did previously on Instagram and then the one that she's doing on the 18th. And I said, let's do both. You know, I said, let's do it the week before Thanksgiving because then people can use it, you know, uh, when they're going out to shop for Thanksgiving dinner and things of that nature like that. And she wants to do it the week before, you know, if we do it the week before, people are gonna forget. They're not gonna remember by the time they go Thanksgiving shopping. So let's do it the 18th and she was like, no, you're right. So, Right, right. Good thinking, Phil. That was smart. Yeah. Okay, moving on. We're going to let Sally Treyor, who is a certified pharmacist, talk. Go ahead, Sally. Do your thing. Can I share my screen? Yes. I can. Okay. Yes. I am not the... I'm not the average millennial, so I'm not savvy. Um, it's a shame. My generation should be ashamed of me. Um, <laughs> I am like, I'm sorry. I have Phil walk me through everything, okay? I don't know any. I'm like, Phil, I need you. It shouldn't be this hard for me, but yet it is. I, sorry. Um, Okay, I found no, it. Okay. I found it. I apologize. Now I just need to figure out how to share my screen. Um, screen sharing works. Yes. Uh, Phil, you might want to walk her through it because you always help me. <laughs> where Where are you currently, Sally? I like it's asking me for my preferences and sharing sharing the whole screen or yeah so are you sharing something from a file or the internet it should i downloaded it um i i picked entire do you have the tab up i do Okay, so it should pop up where it is, maybe like Windows or something like that. I'm just going to go and... You want to send it to me? Um, And then you can move on to someone else. I mean, I could just present on it. It's fine. Yeah, yeah just send it to me. Uh, Dr. Gift, are you okay with us going to you? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, okay. let's see if I can so, share my screen. 
Sally, go ahead and send me send me your slides, and then we'll bring it up that way. No, it's no problem. It's, it's no problem. Uh, we'll go with uh, Doctor Gift, and then uh, and then we'll come back to you. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can share my screen here as well. Um, sorry, one second. Um, let me see if this works. Um, are you able to see it now? It says, can you see anything? Oh, mind? hold on. I'm sorry. Give me one second. It, it should be coming up now. Yeah, there we go. Yep. Is that working? Yep. yep. Can you uh, make it uh, uh, maximize? Yeah, I can uh, put it on slideshow mode. Is that better? Uh, make it can you make it bigger. full screen? Right now, it's full screen on mine. Um, what are you seeing right now? Uh, two different slides, oh, uh, but okay, it's like a smaller see. window. Right, all right. Let me see if I can. Um, hmm. <clears throat> When I put it on full slide presentation, I guess it's it's uh, only showing you the other monitor. Um, let me let me try. That's better right there. Are you okay with just doing it like this? Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's great. Okay, yeah. For some reason, when I put it on slideshow, it it uh, you can't see that screen. Okay. Well, uh, thanks again so much for letting me be a part of such a great uh, symposium here and. Um, it's great to be a part of it and hear and learn a lot, as I did last time as well. Um, uh, I wanted to just talk about, of course, the relationship between the kidney and the heart and the heart and the kidney. Um, and really, it, it's, uh, it's an intricate relationship um, that's a very important relationship to always consider and always think about. And we'll talk about why that is and how many of the things we do for our heart are also important for the kidney and, and vice versa. Um, I'll just start by saying that, uh, you know, as a card, uh, as a medical student, I, I quickly learned that it's, it's the smart people that go into nephrology. So I knew that that wasn't going to be me. So I, I stuck with cardiology, but, um, nephrology is a very, very big part of my daily practice. Uh, no matter what kind of patient I'm seeing, whether this is preventative medicine, uh, just a general visit, you know, for someone who's controlling risk factors like blood pressure, diabetes, or seeing people with end-stage heart disease. Um, um, or like I said, as part of the transplant team, we see a lot of patients on dialysis or near dialysis who are looking to um, get a kidney with a heart or a kidney alone. And so I'm, you know, very much involved with that. And, I, you know, I spend most of my day particularly because um, because our, our group's specialty is really in heart failure, I spend most of my day asking people how much they pee and, uh, you know, calculating how much urine output people make and and uh, their weight. That's a really, really essential part of, of what we do. 
Um, when I see a patient as a cardiologist, the first thing I, one of the first things I want to know is what is your creatinine? How is your kidney function? Because that tells me so much already about, um, about a lot, about their possibly their heart status. It tells me a lot about risk factors. It tells me a lot about how I'm going to manage this patient as a cardiac patient. How am I going to manage them uh, based on what their kidneys are doing? If their kidneys are working well, that's already a huge start in the right direction. Um, now, um, just to go over what, what we'll go through, in the in the 10 or 15 minutes or so um, we'll look at risk factors and we'll see right away how similar the risk factors are for both that that, that will stand out it's really um as I, as i'll keep emphasizing this this link between the between the heart and the kidney um is so so important and the same things that affect one really affect the other um we'll look a little bit at the uh prevalence of ckd in cardiovascular disease um, we'll also talk about the mechanisms and, and the way the heart and kidneys are so linked together. Um, what, what kind of things in, in kidney disease will worsen your heart function? What kind of things in heart disease will worsen your kidney function? Um, and then finally, prevention, because that's what's key in the end of the day. How can we, how can we prevent things from getting to a point where uh, we instead of treating them, how can, we, how can we really prevent them? That's really the name of the game. Um, now, uh, let's, let's start by, by, uh, talking about risk factors. Uh, I always, always, when I, when I meet patients and have to start talking to them about lifestyle changes and, and treating risk factors, I often start by telling them, you know, listen, there's some things in life we can't control. And there's some things that just, they happen. You can't, you can't control necessarily your, you can't control your family you're born into. You can't control your age. Um, you know, race and ethnicity are both uh, really important factors that, that come up a lot uh, in both heart and kidney disease. But there are things you can control, and we really have to focus on things that you can control. And even though there are things you may not feel or you may not see until they're far gone, until they've caused caused um, organ damage already, um, you, we really need to focus on these things up front and don't let them get out of control. And these are things, as you can see, like diabetes and hypertension that are clearly the most common risk factors, I think, for, for uh, kidney and heart disease. Um, and then you have uh, other things, of course, that cause kidney failure regarding related to medications, uh, sometimes uh, exposure to certain infections, um, smoking. And then if I go on to the next slide, you, you can see it's almost the same thing. I mean, it's essentially the same thing. These are cardiovascular risk factors. And again, you have modifiable ones, you have non-modifiable ones. And, um, and you, you know, it, it's so important to really, really focus on this stuff. And, and here we emphasize a little bit more about the uh, cholesterol perhaps. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit later about the use of statin therapy, which is so important in cardiovascular disease and important in kidney disease as well. Um, although, in the later stage kidney disease, uh, there's, there, there isn't as much evidence for the utility of statins, actually. Um, and those are things like you've heard of Lipitor and Crestor and, and drugs like that to help control your cholesterol. But it really starts at the level of um, risk factor control and risk factor modification to, to prevent things from, from getting to where you don't, you don't want them to be. 
Um, now, uh, looking at um, CKD prevalence in, in different types of cardiovascular disease, um, you know, there's, there's coronary artery disease, which is still the number one killer in the world today, um, at least in the Western world today. Um, and patients who have coronary disease that is stable still have a pretty high uh, percentage of people with CKD. Now this, of course, I'm just talking about in, in, in this particular case, it's a GFR of less than 60, essentially. So it doesn't have to be advanced CKD, could be mild CKD, but you're looking at um, coronary disease. People who have had a heart attack will have an even higher percentage uh, that have uh, CKD. And then heart failure, um, you know, is probably the, the most common overlap where we see uh, CKD, and that's almost 50%. Almost 50% of patients with heart failure are going to have some sort of renal dysfunction. And this is a very, very important in, in, in terms of managing their heart failure. Because as we'll see, and as you know, fluid management, volume management is so key. Um, and when somebody has renal failure or if someone's on dialysis, um, you need to maintain you know, your, that dry weight. You need to maintain a proper fluid levels um, or you're going you're gonna to overload your heart. This doesn't mean, when I say congestive heart failure, this doesn't necessarily mean you have a weak heart. Uh, the majority of these patients actually have a strong heart. Um, and most of the patients that I see who are undergoing evaluation for a kidney transplant, um, kidney transplant alone, most of them have a strong hearts, uh, very strong hearts. They're, they're squeezing normally. But other risk factors in, in being on dialysis or having kidney disease is one in itself that causes stiffness of the heart. And stiffness of the heart is another major reason why people end up with what we call congestive heart failure, even with a, strong, a strongly squeezing heart. Um, now, if you, uh, if you look across the spectrum of cardiovascular disease, we're not only talking about um, heart attacks or vascular disease like uh, plaque, and, and blockages building up in your arteries. But if you look across the spectrum of cardiac coronary disease of, of cardiovascular disease, we include things like where it says VHD, valvular heart disease. Valves are very much affected in patients um, with kidney disease um, who are particularly prone to calcium deposition on valves that causes dysfunction. Um, CVA or TIA, strokes, uh, peripheral vascular disease, having having poor blood flow to your extremities or to your brain. Um, uh, it, 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 it kills me to see, but how many times I see young people um, with, with diabetes that are out of control that has hurt, damaged their kidneys um, to, a, to a terrible degree. But in addition, they've got very bad blood flow to their, to their feet. Um, and so, you know, sometimes people have amputations, they have ulcers, they have all sorts of problems that we have to deal with. And um, uh, going, going to the right of that uh, on the graph, even things like arrhythmias are much more prevalent when you have patients who have CKD as well. So the blue in this, as you can see, represents patients with CKD. And overall, we're looking at around 70% patients um, with some cardiovascular disease, one form or another, uh, as, the, as the graph all the way on the left. And then to the right, you see the different uh, the breakdown of different cardiovascular uh, diseases with and without CKD. 
Now, heart failure is, uh, like I said, pro probably the most common overlap because a lot of patients who develop CKD, um, especially if it gets, you know, to a to a, a severe stage of CKD, they often present with with heart failure. They come into the hospital, they can't breathe, they're edematous and you know swollen, and that's what actually brings them into the hospital. Nobody really says, "Oh, you know, doc, I was sitting at home and I could just tell my kidney's not working." You know, they come in because they get fluid overloaded when their kidney's not working, and their blood pressures can skyrocket, and um, and they end up uh, coming in with, with fluid overload. And again, it's not because the heart is weak. The heart is still very strong, but it can't handle the volume load. And a lot of the mechanisms that are kicked into place, um, negative mechanisms that the body kicks in when the kidneys are failing. And so if you look at this graph, it's showing you, well, systolic and diastolic refer to referred to whether the heart is weak in its squeezing function. That would be a systolic heart failure. And diastolic heart failure refers to when the heart is normal in its squeezing function, in its contractile function, but it's weak, or, or, or I should say stiff, in its relaxing diastolic function. But regardless of that, just look at how as you go from left to, work, to the right, as you progress in, in the, the stage of CKD from from stage one all the way to stage four or five, you can see overall how the incidence of heart failure rises really, really significantly. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, the mechanisms of how does one affect, how does CKD cause heart failure? And then we'll talk about how does heart failure affect um, your kidney function. There's a number of ways and various mechanisms how uh, kidney disease can cause heart failure. And I just already mentioned a few of them. But high blood pressure is probably probably the most, uh, the most common. Uh, as I'm sure you know, how many patients with uh, CKD have, have high blood pressure? Either, either they had very high blood pressure to begin with, uh, which could have gone untreated for many years and led to their CKD, or just having CKD can worsen your blood pressure. And um, high blood pressure means the heart is pumping against a high pressure. The heart has to work much harder. It's, it's strained by the, the amount of work it has to do. And that causes fluid to back up into your lungs or into your legs and, um, or your belly and uh, causes what we call heart failure. Um, volume, as I mentioned, is, is the second biggest one. And that's really uh, goes back to also monitoring your weight and fluid intake, um, dialysis, fluid removal. Uh, these, are, these are really, really important. And, um, and then there are other mechanisms that involve uh, vascular dysfunction, endothelial cell dysfunction along the lining of your arteries. Uh, inflammation is increased, and the inflammatory processes of the body end up causing uh, heart failure as well. Um, and, and in addition to that, we have in, in, in kidney patients um, elevated phosphate vitamin D levels, uh, which cause hardening of the arteries, which have been shown to be linked to um, a higher prevalence of heart attacks and stroke and heart failure. So th these, are, uh, how, these are ways that um, patients with CKD end up uh, with um, shortness of breath, 
signs of, of congestive heart failure, even though their heart is still strong. Now, what about the other way? And it's, it's really a back and forth. We have so many patients that come in and we meet them in the beginning with uh, poor heart function, but their creatinine may be completely normal in the beginning. And over time, we monitor their renal functions very closely because that is going to be a sign to me about how their heart failure is being managed and how well their heart failure is being controlled. So for example, um, I may have a patient that comes in and his heart is functioning at 20%, but his creatinine is normal. And he is actually not that swollen. He's not that short of breath, but his heart is very weak. Um, we start him on medications to try and improve that heart function. Um, and over time, I'm monitoring him very closely, look, telling him to check his weight every day, telling him to uh, him or her to monitor the fluid intake, um, how much they're drinking every day. We're looking for signs of swelling. And, and sure enough, over time, we might start to see uh, renal dysfunction, especially when someone comes into the hospital overloaded with fluid. They never had a kidney problem before, but they're overloaded. And now their kidney function is out of whack. Their creatinine went up to two. And there are two main mechanisms by which this occurs. There are many, but if you had to broadly categorize them, the most common one is what we call venous congestion. And this is when fluid is backing up because of poor heart function. It doesn't only back up into your lungs, it backs up everywhere. So everywhere in your venous system of your, of your body, you have congestion, you have backup of fluid. And the kidneys don't like that. And so we use diuretics and such to try and decongest or decompress the kidneys and the venous system. And oftentimes someone will come in with heart failure and overloaded with fluid. Um, we'll give them lots of diuretics, get rid of a lot of fluid. And it's beautiful to see their creatinine come right back down. And that's, that's, that's telling you that you're really doing the right thing and the kidneys are being decongested. It's one of the ways that we really guide our therapy. As a cardiologist, especially for someone who's in the hospital and I'm trying to get rid of fluid and help them breathe better, control their blood pressure and, and other things, um, I'm watching the creatinine. If it's getting better every day, I know we're doing something right. Um, the other, the other uh, mechanism by which we see a lot of uh, kidney dysfunction is... Um, poor forward flow, poor output from the heart. And in this case, the, the kidneys are not seeing enough blood flow. They're not getting good perfusion um, of blood flow because the heart function is poor and the heart is not adequately sustaining the body's needs or the kidneys needs to see enough perfusion or enough, enough flow. So I'm just looking at my timer here. Um, so we, we then, of course, work on trying to improve forward flow by using medications um, to medications to, for example, to, to improve forward flow um, to uh, sometimes we even use mechanical devices or pumps that we attach to the heart to improve forward flow. Uh, sometimes we do a heart transplant in the end of the day because their forward flow is just so poor and their, and their blood pressures in these people might, might be very low actually. Um, a, a couple words now on what is really the key, and, and, and that's what I think today is, is, is all about, and that's prevention. 
What can we do to prevent uh, dysfunction of the kidney and the heart uh, and, 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 and uh, stop these processes at an early stage? Well, it's really about lifestyle. And number one is diet and exercise. Um, what do we mean when we talk about diet? Well, we, we just had a, you know, a great, great presentation by Kelsey about diet um, and, and eating health, healthfully. Um, it's really similar, you know, similar uh, guidelines. But in cardiovascular disease, we, we talk about uh, a diet that's uh, high in, uh, in, in raw vegetables, fruits, nuts, whole grains, fish, um, low salt, low fat. Um, you know, you can still enjoy things. You can still find the things that, you know, cheat once in a while. You can still eat red meat once in a while, but it's all in moderation. And, and, and what do I mean by exercise? You know, it's very, it's amazing to me what, when you talk to patients, it's so subjective. You ask some person, you know, can you, do you feel limited? Can you, can you walk without shortness of breath? That could mean one, something to one person that means completely something else to someone, you know, to another patient. So um, in general, for, uh, for a normal, healthy individual, we try to encourage moderate, at least moderate intensity exercise for about 150 minutes a week. And so you can you break that up over, you know, the whole week or three to five days. Um, but it's basically moderate intensity exercise. Um, and that, that includes things like brisk walking, you know, biking at a, at a regular pace, dancing. Um, and then uh, if, if you don't have the, the time to 150 minutes a week, um, if you can do more high intensity uh, workouts, um, then we're talking about uh, our, our recommendations usually about 75 minutes a week. Um, and that's that's doable. That That's things like jogging, running, you know, something that's more high intensity. Uh, playing one-on-one tennis, um, aerobic type exercise. Uh, the next, the next um, thing we, of course, we emphasize a lot is, is smoking cessation. Uh, I can't really emphasize that enough. Um, uh, diabetes control can't emphasize that enough. Generally speaking, we're aiming for a hemoglobin A1C, which is one of the blood tests you may be familiar with, um, of less than seven percent at least. Um, we have medications today also that are both diabetic medications and cardiovascular risk reducing medications, um, both for heart failure and, and general cardiovascular risk, things you may have heard of like um, um, uh, dapagliflozin, which is known as Farxiga, or Jardians. These are some medicines you may have heard about. Um, blood pressure control is essential. Usually we're, we're talking about trying to get a blood pressure of less than 130 over 80, uh, particularly in the CKD patients. Cholesterol control with diet and statins. Um, and then be very careful with over-the-counter medications. You know, this is a really common uh, abuse of your, of your kidney uh, unintentionally um, with uh, over-the-counter NSAIDs or, you know, Advil, ibuprofen, those kind of medications for pain. Um, um, you know, watching vitamin D levels, although we have yet to really prove that vitamin D supplementation really reduces the risk of heart disease. We know that a low vitamin D level does increase your risk of heart disease. And the last thing I want to emphasize is just routine follow-up with your doctor. Don't fall off the chart, you know, don't fall out of his um, purview and make sure you still follow up because a lot of these things, almost all of them, 
They are, they are not things you feel or see. These are things that creep up on you. Blood pressure, diabetes, uh, weight gain. You don't necessarily notice until they've really taken their toll on you. So in summary, um, CKD and cardiovascular disease, especially diabetes and hypertension, are so common and are very intricately related. Um, lifestyle is the biggest thing you can do, um, that everyone can do, ahead of time to, to improve your overall risk profile and uh, prevent these things for the rest of your life. Um, and prevention is the key. And that's what today really is all about. So thank you so much for having me. That was wonderful, man. Thank you so much, Dr. Geff. That was awesome. Um, Dr. Geff, one question. I, I always write down a couple of questions. I had questions for everybody. So one question I wanted to ask you was, um, <clears throat> how does the fish, fish, fishula, uh, fishula, uh, how does the heart affect the fishula or how does the fishula affect the heart? That's a, that's a great question. That's a great question because um, I, it's something that I think about a lot. Um, seeing so many dialysis patients. Um, the, the, the truth is, in, in, in many patients, the fistula may not really have much effect on the heart. Okay. Um, there have been some, some studies, and, 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 and sometimes we will, we will, we will look at, at hemodynamics and, and do invasive measurements in the heart while we may try to occlude the fistula flow. But let me just give a, a general uh, a, a general answer to this kind of question. The way the, the, the way the fistula would, would affect the heart the most is by increasing the overall blood flow, in, in increasing the amount of blood flow that goes through the body, and therefore the heart has to handle, the heart has to deal with that. And there are some conditions where high flow states, where your body is seeing so much high blood flow because you've connected a, a, an artery with a vein and so all that arterial blood that's running with high pressure is directly going into the vein, causing, you know, creating the fistula. That's going to rush back to the heart. Um, and the heart has to deal with that, that higher blood flow. So um, one, we see it sometimes in people who have heart failure. It might be related to a high flow state. They may just have very high, high, um, high amount of blood flow, uh, meaning, you know, a normal person, let's say, would have five, six liters per minute of blood flow. Right. You may have a patient with a fistula who sees eight or nine liters per minute of right. blood flow, and the body has to, to accommodate that. And there's another condition called pulmonary hypertension, which in some cases is related. It's, it's high. What that is is high blood pressure in the pulmonary artery. That's the artery that connects the heart and the lungs. It's not your regular blood pressure, it's the blood pressure in that system. And that sometimes is affected by high flow states as well. So it's another place. But um, I do sometimes send patients to have their fistulas evaluated in terms of how much flow is going through the fistula and if it's too high. But I will say that rarely can we do much about it. You know, patients have a fistula they need for dialysis, then they need it. The question is sometimes down the road when they're post-kidney transplant, can we close the fistula at some point? Right. Um, and yeah. that, you know, I, I remember um, I was about two years out of my uh, my transplant and uh, my fistula started clotting off and th you stopped thrilling altogether. And uh, so I, I was transplanted at John Hopkins uh, 
And I called my doctors up there and they were happy. They were like, we're glad it clotted off because now, and what I could tell was, you know, even at nighttime, my heart would be going a lot higher, but once it clotted off, my heart slowed down. I could tell the difference because when I was on dialysis, my, um, I ran four and a half hours at 600 and it was like nonstop. And I had a good fistula. My doctors always said I had a great one and I'm, they even did a documentary on my fistula at Ohio State University wow. because it was such a good one. But when it clotted off again, I could tell that my heart wasn't beating as hard. That that could be from the the, the amount of blood flow going yeah. through your system. And I still have mine. I'm I'm 15 months transplanted. My I still have mine, and I'm I'm very active with uh, walking and uh, some light, you know, weightlifting. I'm not trying to get overly buff, but I do try to tone and, and lift weights. Uh, but I, I haven't really found that it's affected my heart. My heart still feels like it's uh, beating in really good rhythm. Uh, and also checking my blood pressure, uh, you know, once or twice a day usually. Uh, so I know where my heart, what my heart rate is uh, most of the day. And uh, I, I haven't really experienced any problems with it, but I have heard a lot of stories of people that uh, have went in and had theirs uh, taken out or caught, you know, cut, you know, taken out. But uh, and then I've heard patients that have kept theirs uh, for a long period of time. So uh, what is it? Is it common to post transplant for most patients to keep theirs or do they recommend that you do go in and have it taken out? Um, I, I can tell you what I've seen, but I think Dr. Brooklyn is probably the best person to answer that question. Um, you know, go. I, I have not seen it as a routine to go and take down fistulas. Most people keep it because, you know, if it's not causing a problem, just leave it. Uh, in some cases, people, they leave it because maybe the kidney function is not perfect after a transplant. They may even eventually need it again. Hopefully not. But, but Dr. Brookins, what do you think? That's correct. Um, very similar, like I tell patients about uh, polycystic kidney disease. Even if you get a transplant, if there are no problems with the large kidneys, if there's no problem with the fistula, all of that remains. Um, you either you let it clot off on its own, or if it does develop complications, then um, it will get like it. Thank you. No, thanks. Thanks for answering. And, and, and like, like again, uh, Dr. Brooks, my doctors were. They were happy that mine clotted off on his own. They were like, we're glad that happened, you know? So like you said, uh, and, and and Jonathan, I, I heard uh, a, a couple people removing them because of cosmetic situations where people didn't like the way they looked and things like that. But yeah, as far as anything else, I never heard anybody really, you know, removing them for any other reason. Well, and I could understand that in some cases because some people's fistulas are just massive and uh, kind of look almost like a, a snake, if you will. I mean, I've seen some that are that are huge that go, and I could understand that for the cosmetic sense. Uh, mine's right here on my on my on my left wrist right here, and um, I don't know. I kind of wear it like a badge of honor in a way because <laughs> I experienced so much with the near death experience. So uh, it's kind of a conversation starter, if you will, for me yeah. in a way. So. Yeah. Dr. Giff, another question yeah, I have. For I didn't you do was, the fistula okay. thing. Go ahead. Oh, Ryan. Uh, I didn't do the fistula. I went through, uh, uh, you know, to get a port put in, but it, it might have been better for me to get one, put get a fistula because I had so much 
happened with uh with my partner Clauden. Then I was uh allergic to heparin, which caused me to have a brain bleed. So um sometimes I think like should I have gone down that route, you know, maybe I wouldn't have to deal with blood clots and you know, I had to get it taken and switched about four or five times and uh like I said, you know, plus the uh, the brain bleed which left me in the hospital for a month. So um sometimes I kinda think like I should have just went ahead and just sit up and did it. You know, like Jonathan was, was mentioning not too long ago, you know, my first time seeing a fish was at the transplant games. We were playing basketball and I'm sitting there standing, I'm going, What is wrong with this man's arm? <laughs> and they're looking at me like why why aren't you playing defense? I'm like, I am just from a different angle. I'm not trying to touch this. I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know if it's a massive pimple is gonna bust. Like, what is what is this thing? And that was and it still wasn't until later when I found out that that's what that was. And so when I got to the point of having to uh make that transition from in center to uh you know dialysis because I always knew when I first got when I went back to dialysis I wanted to do peritoneal but because the, at the time the issue was so demanding of me going on dialysis they were like you don't have the time to wait for uh you know for it to heal and so you need it right now so um it took me three years to get back on PD and even then I was still kind of contemplating you know what should I do you know because I've, I've never heard, I didn't hear too many stories about people with fistulas, right? So I didn't really know pros and cons, you know, good versus bad things that nature. So I just went with, with PD. So yeah, that was a better choice for now. But I think that if I'd have made that decision earlier with going with a fistula, then, you know, it wouldn't have happened. Now, I mean by early, I mean when I made the original decision because it happened all of what two months after I went on in center dialysis. So I went in August 2010 and October 2010, I was going in for emergency brain surgery. So um I wish I'd have had these conversations with like Mr. Cook and with Jonathan and, and a number of other people that I've talked to with fish because you know if I would have had that decision before I probably would have made a different decision. But uh go ahead Mr. Cook back to you. Well I was just gonna say the more information always the better. But Dr. Geff, I wanted to ask you a question with um, the lungs. Now, we, we all know that the lungs, the heart, and the kidneys all play a part. But, like, how, like, when the lungs get overloaded, how does that affect the kidneys also and the heart? How does all three of them affect one another? Well, usually it's, a, it's, it's like we, the, the primary mechanism we talked about is congestion. You know, it's the same, it's, it's backup of fluid, backup of blood. Um, that that starts to affect the lungs because the lungs are, uh, you know, directly connected there with with the heart. Um, but that same congestion is what what the kidneys don't like either. And kid, kidneys want smooth blood flow coming in and coming, you know, coming in and coming out, and, and being able to filter it properly. When you have high pressures backing up like that, then you you really start to um, you can't filter as well. And that venous congestion in the renal veins, in the veins that you know take blood away from the kidneys, that causes um, the kidney to be unable to filter properly. 
Um, so it's that same, it's the same process. Um, it's rare that a patient, you know, would get the uh, enough fluid in their lungs that their oxygen levels are so low. Kidneys don't like that either. Kidneys and all organs need to see good perfusion with good oxygenation. Um, so, so if lungs are damaged that badly, you know, that's another way it could affect the kidneys. But in general, we're basically talking about the same process of congestion that's backing up into the lungs, also backing up into the kidneys. Yeah, I remember um, getting when I first got diagnosed, I was I was playing college ball and uh, never forget running down the field. It felt like somebody was standing on my chest because, like, again, my, my kidneys were shutting down and the fluid was building up in me and I'm still trying to play football. And I'm like, Dad, why is everything so hard? It felt like I was like running in slow motion, like I couldn't even move. So, and that's what they told me. They were like, you're in heart failure and your lungs are filling up with flu. And I, at being young at the time, 18 years old, I didn't even understand what they were talking about. So I understand now with, you know, what was going on uh, as I've been doing more and more, you know, getting more and more information with these things. Do we have any more questions for Dr. Uh, Geth? Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Geff. We really appreciate all you do, and the information you gave us was A1. We really appreciate that. Right now, we're going to go to a commercial, and Phil, take it away. Hi, everyone. I'm Camille Cook, the family nurse practitioner, the creator, the developer, the chef, and the cook of crack. Well, Creamy Crack, the addictive, all-natural body cream. I have a background in dermatology and cosmetic surgery, and I created a 98% organic and a 2% all-natural body cream in 2011 for both my son and husband. My son who suffered from the irritating symptoms of eczema, and my husband who was a two-time kidney transplant survivor and who was on kidney dialysis for over 10 years. They both suffered from the dry, itchy, scaly, and flaky skin. And as a mom and a wife, and with a background in dermatology as a nurse practitioner, I couldn't stand back and see them suffer any longer. So I got into the kitchen and started cooking. Crack, well creamy crack again the all-natural body cream. It moisturizes, it replenishes, it restores, it heals and protects your largest organ. You got it, your skin. I have been able to make such a difference in the lives of those people who suffer from the irritating symptoms of being on kidney dialysis or who are awaiting a kidney transplant and also for those who suffer from eczema. Those people or individuals have suffered way too long and tried too many things to help their skin come back to life. I am so honored and grateful for you to try this all natural body cream. Again, that's going to help you look and feel better with your skin. Creamy Crack can be found on all social media platforms at Creamy Crack Body Cream or can be purchased at CreamyCrackBodyCream.com. I look forward to serving you, 
sharing with you and making an impact in your life. I hope you'll go out and try Creamy Crack, the addictive all natural body cream. Thank you. They clap. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was a great commercial. I love right. the commercial. I love the name too, Creamy Crack. It's, it's genius. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love it. I gotta, I gotta send Jonathan some also. But uh, Phil, Phil likes it. it. It definitely helps my skin out a lot, especially coming from dialysis for a long period of time. Man, I, I was trying everything and nothing worked. But uh, the creamy crack definitely works for my skin, which is the biggest organ in your body. So that's huge. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Going forward, we're gonna go with Sally Treor. Go ahead, Sally, do your thing. Tell us about it. I'm going to try again. I just give me one more chance to disappoint you guys. <laughs> you don't, support, you don't Phil, disappoint. Philip actually uh, sent me your file, so I can probably share it for you if you'd like for me to. I don't know why he keeps saying he doesn't. Uh, Philip, I sent it to you, right? Yeah, he's, he sent it to me. Okay. Yeah, he said, I sent it to him. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I'll just follow along here or like have it here so that everybody else is able to see it on, on the screen as well. And so I, I, I'm going to wait until I get the green light that everybody else can see. Yeah. Bill, you gave me the permission to share. You should be able to just do it because Dr. Gev did it. So. You might have to push allow or somebody might be asking you for your from, from your laptop from your computer. Just give me one second. I'm gonna try to find the file really quickly. Now, unfortunately, it's only going to allow me to share a video file, and that's actually not a video file. It's a PowerPoint presentation, so I'm not going to be able to share it, Phil. It should be able to come up. Is it already up? Yeah, it's coming underneath a PowerPoint presentation. It's only allowing me to share it as a video file. It's not a video file, though. It's a PowerPoint presentation, so. I'm sorry. Well, okay. You should be able to. No, if, if I can bring it up, I'll bring it up while you're speaking. We'll catch up. Um, okay. and a lot of this. Well, I'm glad uh, Dr. went before me because so essentially I titled the presentation. It's really quick. It's just the role that your pharmacist plays in helping you maintain kidney health and helping you meet your health goals. Um, my crash with pharmacy happened after my nephrologist had essentially tried every trick she knew in the book to get me to engage in my own care and get me to participate as a 15 year old um, teenager who 
not taking my medication with like my weird way of like claiming power over my body when I felt like I was going through a process with a lot of what was happening to me, I didn't have a lot of power over it. Um, and so not taking my meds, I felt empowered by that. And I use this model today to engage with a lot of my patients because I know that many people who find themselves with chronic disease states kind of feel like they've given up that power and that control over their body. And so for me, I wanted to outline some of the services that a pharmacist can provide, for example, their main responsibility essentially in whatever capacity that they're working with your healthcare professionals is ensuring that whatever medication that the doctor wants to start on you, that they can have an explanation for why that medication exists as part of one of the tools that the providers want to employ to try to get, get you healthy or help you feel better. And so I, I really take my role seriously as the silent patient advocate and that one gatekeeper before I hit verify, because I know if I don't ask all of those questions, the medication is going to get started and it'll take a lot before someone realizes that, well, we shouldn't have employed this medication to begin with. I collaborate primarily with you, the patient. Um, my patients are like the center of everything. I try to empower them by making sure, I don't know, a lot of people are into sports. So I start with sports. And then if sports don't work, I go to like different movies or books. But I try to find something that you can relate to. Football is really um, popular in this area. So I tell my patients that they are the, quarter, the quarterback on this team in our efforts to try to get them healthy. Um, if you have a support person in your corner, I really do collaborate with that support person um, because I know that one of those people in my life was my younger sister. She was only 11, but she was really instrumental in helping me want to continue to fight and want me to continue to engage by helping me just, she always had a way of just making me think about later. Like when you get your new kidney, we're going to do this. When you get your new kidney, we're going to do this. So it was just like to her, I'm sure it was like not important, but it gave me something to look forward to that made me want to take my phosphorus binders and go to dialysis um, instead of like skipping dialysis and giving everybody a scare, like where are you? You're supposed to be here type thing. <laughs> um, and nurses and social workers, as well as the facility managers, I collaborate with everybody because understanding everybody's social economic issues um, is important to what my goal is. And so if, if you are faced with having to make a decision between buying food versus pay, affording your medication co-pays, that's information that's important for me to know because I can help you tap into a lot of community as well as organizational resources that can really remove some of these socioeconomic issues that are in the way. Um, not everybody is comfortable talking about those things, but over time, I've just figured out a way to just relate and talk to people about different challenges that some of my patients face. And somehow making them feel like they're not the only ones going through it helps them open up to me and share with me that maybe they're only eating one meal a day 
And so they're not checking their blood sugar as frequently because they're just only eating one. Well, why are you only eating once a day? And so just learning how to more like employ modes of motivational interviewing to learn more about what some of these barriers are has been really, really um, instrumental in how I've been able to reach patients. Um, if you have a pharmacist on your transplant team, um, have access to a pharmacist through your nephrologist's office, they do something called a comprehensive medication review. This is, this is one of the most powerful tools that I have at my disposal with how I'm able to engage everybody on your team. Because when I'm looking at, it's essentially a total and complete review of each medication where I'm able to understand how long you've been taking the medications, um, but really gauging your understanding of why you're actually taking the medication. So I take this for my blood pressure and I take this to help me sleep and I take this, but I really want to know, well, why is it important for you to take this for your blood pressure? And why do you think your doctor wants you to take it in the morning instead of the evening? Why does the doctor want the cholesterol medication in the evening and not in the morning? Because I feel like um, those types of um, ground zero levels of education and helping you understand the why behind why the physicians are making some of the decision really helps, again, put that power back in your hands. Um, um, and also just people start listening to me when I say things like, I want to help you meet your goals and keep you out of the hospital. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter what I've been saying, but they start paying attention to what I'm saying. And I think they think like I have some magical skills to make that happen. But people don't want to be in the hospital. Majority of my patients, they have grandkids, they have their families, like they'd rather be at home and engaging in their live events instead of being hospitalized. So I really do use this as a tool to help them understand that there are ways and there are plans that we can come up with to help you meet those health goals that can keep you engaged in your life and out of the hospital. Um, the pharmacist can help you with barriers to adherence. Um, studies continue to consistently find that medication costs are a huge contributing factor to barriers to adherence in this country. Um, and so I spend a lot of time and energy doing a lot of research. Um, if I'm going to go see a diabetic patient, I may look at their medication list and see what are some specialized medications that they're taking? Um, a copay of $25 may not mean anything to me, but I have a bunch of Medicare and Medicaid patients where they're on a fixed income. Some of them may receive $1,600 a day, $750 is rent, and then all of their medication copays a month could be up to three dollars to $400. And so every opportunity I have to help them research manufacturer coupons help them apply for Medicare extra help, which is something that a lot of the seniors don't even know exists or people that have Medicare have no idea that even if you can't afford your copay, Medicare may be able to help you um, just eliminate that barrier so that you are picking up. Physical limitations, um, some, medica some medications require manipulation. So if my patients have tremors in their hands, they may not be able to manipulate inhalers. They may not be able to dial syringes up appropriately. And so looking for alternative routes of administration of medications so that 
some of these physical limitations are not reasons why people are getting hospitalized over and over again and they're being labeled non-compliant when in actuality there are other factors or i had a patient that had arthritis like she literally couldn't open her pill boxes so maybe a person like that could benefit from blister packaging instead of putting pills in her bottle to increase her compliance um personal belief there are people that do not believe in western medicine um and i i respect people's beliefs. And I really do try to make sure that they know that they have the right, like one of their rights is to say that they do not want to be treated. Um, at that point, once I realized that I'm up against a personal or religious belief, I just focus on the education. And the education at that point is that these medications are known to help you do this, accomplish this, and here's what you can expect from them. Um, and so I don't, I don't really venture out to try to change minds, but I try to empower with information so that people know they have all of the information and they're still making the decision themselves. Um, the other is, and being your healthcare advocate, that just is you and I partnering to help you meet your goals. Some of my patients, their goals are very simple to them. It's this huge goal. They want to be able to take their dog walking for more than 10 minutes without being short of breath. We can do that. <laughs> if, if I can convince you and find a way for you to take your diuretic as prescribed and limit the salt that you're eating, and I can work with you so that that 10 minute walk with your dog doesn't seem like this huge task, but some of them are really depressed and sad over the fact that they used to be able to walk their dog. They used to be able to park with the grandkids and all of a sudden they've become congested to the point where that's not even, they can't even get up from their front door to the mailbox without taking four breaks, right? And so the moment I see on their faces where it connects for them that the Lasix or the Bumex, like, that's why these are prescribed. These are prescribed so that as you take these, they can really help manage your congestion and you can be able to engage on some of those physical activities. Um, so that's like one of the things. Safety with medication is a huge thing, especially for elderly patients. They're on a lot of medications. And so I do focus a lot on their safety. And one of the main things I try to work with all of my patients is making sure that we have an accurate medication list with you have an accurate medication list at all times um, because the emergency room continues to be the number one place where medication errors and medication reconciliations, medications that people are no longer taking or initiated in the ED or they were taking certain medications at home but that's missing from their list so we don't find out till three, four days later that the patient is supposed to be on a specific medication that's absolutely crucial or the medication doesn't have anything to do with why they're in the hospital and we don't have a legitimate reason for interrupting them. And so I come through and I look at the your pick your community refill patterns and I talk to you, I talk to the family support person to really find that out and understanding side effects. So 
One of the biggest and most difficult realities of any medication therapy, I speak for myself, I am convinced that prednisone was created to ruin my life. It's okay because I know why it's there. Um, I come to terms with it, but I absolutely hate what it's, it has done to my body, even though I know why I absolutely must take it every day. Studies have found consistently, no matter how the clinical question was asked, that no matter how uncomfortable or scary the side effect is, if you do a good enough job preparing your patients for what the potential side effects of a medication is going to be, they are less likely to discontinue that medication once those signs start to exhibit themselves. I really, really rely on this and I have seen this happen where just telling someone that you could see your tears, your sweat from a specific antibiotic, it could turn orange or your urine could turn completely orange. I don't want you to freak out. That's a good sign that the medication is in your system. And when it happens, they call you, they're like, if you never told me that, I would have thrown that whole bottle in the trash. I would have never taken it again. Um, but understanding and preparing people for what they should expect when they start to take the medication, if it's a new medication or if you've had something similar to it, I still go through everything to make sure that you understand it. Some things that do increase the side effect profile or the number of medications. So essentially, it's just the more medications we start having in the mix, the higher our chances are that we will start exhibiting some unple unpleasant secondary effects from those medications. And so traditionally, this is something we really worry about with elderly patients. However, if you're a person living with chronic kidney disease, for example, just your regular everyday stuff, if you have diabetes, more likely than not, you're on two already. Hypertension, another two. Phosphorus binders, another two. The vitamins, another two. So like the numbers add up really, really quickly. And so sometimes we are combining medications where the side effect is because of that combination and administration time. Simple things like separating when we take one medication from another could completely change how our body responds to that medication. And so every time something new is introduced, it is absolutely an amazing question to ask, should I change the way I take any of these other medications I am currently taking? It's a great question to ask because it's such an overlooked little fact when in actuality, yeah, combining two medications, they could completely inactivate each other. That's like worst case scenario where you're there, you're like, I swear I'm taking it, I swear I'm taking it, but maybe the combination of the two agents completely inactivate each other and you're getting zero benefit from it or taking it two medications together one can overpower the other and the effect of the other agent is not felt. So ultimately, it's a great question to ask anytime something new is being initiated, just to be sure that you are not going to run into that problem. Um, incorrectly taking certain medications could increase side effects. One of the most common things 
um, I run into is that medications that are scheduled once a day, I do this. I encourage people if it's once a day, take it in the morning and that way you're done with it. That's done for that day. You know you've met the requirement for that day. It's over. But some of the medications that are prescribed for anxiety and depression, for example, if you take it in the morning, they have the tendency of causing drowsiness. And so now you're drowsy all day, but then you're wide awake at night and you go and you take Benadryl to try to sleep at night. So you're adding another medication to the mix that could cause secondary constipation. So really, really simple things like making sure that if there's a side effect, a potential of causing drowsiness, I'm just going to make that an evening medication when I do want to be drowsy or in the event that I get drowsy, it's not going to be a big deal. It's nighttime anyway. That's what I want. I want a good night's sleep. So sometimes people discontinue medications when the solution is really simple. So just verbalizing what these unpleasant things are. A lot of advice I give about increasing adherence. Cell phones nowadays have become such an integral part of all our days. Um, I have a, an alarm that rings on my phone, an alarm that rings on my Apple Watch, and I have an alarm that rings on my TV at night to make sure that I have, in fact, taken my anti-rejection medications, right? And I don't have such a great track record with compliance. And so every little thing I can do, I do it just to make sure that I hold myself accountable. My sister checks in in the morning, every morning at 10 a.m. It's like, did you take it? And I'm like, I took it. It's literally like a two second phone call and we're done. But whatever, if it's a buddy, if it's an alarm, Whatever routine you need to develop, it just needs to be a routine. That's what I found to work. Right after, before I get dressed, I take my meds. Then I get dressed. Then everything else that day could work out. I could forget my lunch and it's still going to be a good day because I took my meds. But if I forgot to take my meds, I'm coming back, then I'm late for work. Everything else is going to be okay because I took my meds. So it's like a change in mentality and making sure that no matter what you have to do that day, you can forget you can forget your phone at home, you can forget your keys in the car. If you remember to take your meds that day, for me, I'm winning. There's nothing that can happen that day that's essentially gonna throw me off. Um, Dr. Gatz already touched on this a little bit, over-the-counter medication, they are a huge source of headache. When it comes to medication safety, don't take a single thing over the counter that you haven't spoken to your medical professional about. Um, and I think the new thing now is that things are labeled as leaf, like they don't use natural anymore because I think um, the language around natural and educating people that just because it's natural, that doesn't mean it's not gonna interact with your medication. So there's a lot of verbiage around leaf or leafy um, remedies or leaf remedies on tea bags and things like that. Herbals can cause some of the most detrimental drug interactions that could have serious consequences. Natural products the same. Dr. Getz already talked about pain relievers. We see it so much in the ED, people that take ibuprofen around the clock. It could cause bleeding from your intestines as well as affecting your kidney function. 
just talk to somebody. <laughs> if you call the doctor's office, leave a message. Just don't. Adventures are not the greatest thing for those of us living with CKD when it comes to over-the-counter medication. We shouldn't expose ourselves to anything that somebody hasn't told us it's okay to do. Um, and essentially, my conclusion is just that the pharmacists don't require an appointment. This is a shameless plug for pharmacists. I'm sorry, Dr. Brookinson. We don't require any appointments. You can walk up to any counter and ask the pharmacist for advice. They are there to assist and help you. And we are trained absolutely not to give self-care advice when we know what medical background or like if you have, you say you're on dialysis or you've had a valve replacement or you, there are some words that immediately tell us, please do check in with your cardiologist or do check in with your nephrologist. But as far as the list I have here, it should be okay, but I want them to know that you're trying such and such. Um, taking your medications as prescribed every single day at the same time. If you're taking the meds at 10, let 10 o'clock be medication time. You can't decide the next day that you're gonna take it at three and then at 10 the next day. That's The body is a machine and when we put things in it, it processes things at a very specific rate. So the administration and the frequency of administration is factored into how the body will respond to the substances. So take things as prescribed every day. Um, Over-the-counter medications should go through somebody and be your own advocate. I mean, I just think that your engagement and your voice as part of the discussion um, like I know what I can tolerate and I know what I cannot, <laughs> I cannot tolerate. Right. And the transplant team, like they know, and I am vocal. I tell them I'm struggling. I need help. I'm struggling with the weight gain, with the prednisone. I'm really struggling. Can we do anything? And it's watch what you eat, start exercising as you can get some help with how you're eating, get some help with how you're exercising, but at least they are aware of what you're feeling and there may be things that they can do to help. But spontaneously making executive decisions with your medication just leads to really, really bad outcome. That's like my one overall advice. And drugs, they don't work if we don't take them. That's just life advice, I think. Thank you. Um, if anyone has any questions, of course. <clears throat> Sally, that was wonderful. Great information. Thank you so much. You know, I have questions. I'm, <laughs> I, I just, I'm always, I ask everybody questions because that's only, hey, I'm, I'm a student for life. I always want to learn, man. I'm, I'm 15 years out transplant. I'm, I'm doing great, but I'm going to keep on learning. That's awesome. Good uh, <clears throat> Yeah, the question I got, though, is, um, how can gut complications compromise your medication? And the reason why I ask that is I, I'm, I, I know two people who have transplants and I told them they needed to see a GI doctor because you know they, was, they might not, and they had stomach problems. So I was like, man, you might wanna be concerned because I don't know if you're absorbing your medication. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanna ask you that question. Yeah, so your gut, it's, it's like called GI motility. All that is, it's just a fancy terminology with how the rate 
at which things move along your, your intestinal tract, right? When medications are being dosed, and for transplant in particular, tacrolimus is like the big one that's very easily affected by the rate at which things are going through us. So if you are having diarrhea and things like that, the medication is not staying in your system long enough for your gut to be able to absorb the medication. Tacrolimus in particular is absorbed in the beginning part of the, at the intestines, right? So if things are moving way too fast and you're having diarrhea, it's not in your system long enough for you to get the, the intended benefit. So of course they monitor the tacro level and they'll be able to see that the tacro level is extremely low. They'll start asking you questions, like they're trained to kind of check on things like that. But maintaining a healthy gut is crucial to any medication therapy. So because I was telling you like medication, like the way they decide if a medication is gonna be given once or twice a day or if it's going to be given to you as a continuous infusion, it's all based on studies and understanding of once this medication hits the machine, which is the body, this is the rate at which we expect it to be absorbed. This is the rate at which we expect it to bring blood pressure down, heart rate down. This is the rate at which we expect to see the patient's urine output to start to improve. But that's an assumption if all of the conditions on the machine are perfect. Right. So everybody doesn't have the right conditions at all time. Communication again becomes super important because if you tell the transplant team that you've had three days of diarrhea, when they get your labs, it's gonna make sense to them as to why your potassium, your phosphorus, like a whole bunch of things are disturbed and everybody doesn't get overly excited and go changing doses. They may decide to hydrate, and then repeat your labs to really see how much impact the diarrhea had on you. But yes, I'm sure that if they're transplanted, their team is gonna be interested in getting that resolved as quickly as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so Sally, I have, I have one question for you. Um, because you were a transplant patient before you were a pharmacist. So were there things that you kind of, that you learned that helped you with medication taking and picking and getting certain medications and how you conversate with your own nephrologist? Uh, did any of that kind of come into play after you became a, a pharmacist? Absolutely, the conversations are completely different. Um, when I was my first transplant, 19, 20 years old, and still flirting with non-compliance because the bad habits I had developed in dialysis were still plaguing me as a transplant person, um, they don't go away. <laughs> Those bad habits don't like magically go away now because I'm transplanted and it's like, oh, I know better. I was still having to unlearn the bad habits and the conversations were like, you need to really take your meds. This is a gift. This is supposed to last 20 years. But if you continue to treat it like this, we're not going to get that much time out of it. And then I become a pharmacist and I'm asking certain questions. When is my next donor-specific antigen lab due? How much fluid should I be drinking to stay hydrated? My medication refills are due at this time and at that time. 
Um, thankfully, it's made me a more educated patient and I'm able to engage with my nephrologist on a different level. I mean, he's known me since I was 15 and I can't imagine like he he's having out of body experiences now because from having meltdowns in his office, you can't make me do this. I don't want to do this. I'd rather die. I mean, it's just all of the teenager temper tantrums in his office to sitting down with him now and really mapping things out and saying, in three months, I want to see this and I want you to start managing your diet. I know you're struggling with the weight gain, but it's normal. It's only been a year. Just keep working. The conversation's completely different. <laughs> it's completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Thank you have a question? Thank you, guys. Yeah. Yes, I do. Um, so early on in the uh in the, in the education after transplant, they, they talked with me about taking my immune suppressants and uh, they were talking about the importance of uh, not eating an hour before you take your immune suppressants and an hour after. Uh, can you tell us the reason why that's important uh, when taking the immunosuppressants? Yeah, so some of the medication and this is strictly related to the stomach acid content, right? And so some medications are called, what's called like acid labile versus non-acid labile. And so when the time at which, or the conditions in which your stomach is, when the medication lands, they, they've actually done studies to see that if the stomach is empty, you could see a higher, what's called like a, a C-max or an area under the curve of certain medication when you take it on an empty stomach versus when you take those same agents when there's food in your stomach, where the stomach um, content and the stomach acid content could be different. And so with anti-rejection medication ensuring, I think um, the advice that I had gotten was that with the exception of my tacrolimus, they were advising me that tacrolimus was okay to take with meals because they're, I don't know, at Hopkins, they've done something fancy to figure out that meals actually help with the absorption of the tacrolimus. But otherwise, that if I could take it before meals, it's fine. Prednisone, at doses higher than 20 milligrams, people struggle with taking it on an empty stomach because it can cause heartburn and nauseousness and things like that. So until they usually start to see it, they'll advise you, okay, then you can take it with food if that will help with the nauseousness. But other medications that we treat like that, it's like metformin. Usually people that take more than 1,000 milligram of metformin per dose, they'll complain of nauseousness. It's not an allergy. It's not a reason to stop taking it. If you just start taking it with food, that nauseousness goes away completely. But it has all to do with just the conditions that the medication requires for maximal absorption. Okay. Yeah. I mean, as you know, those are basically you're you're poisoning the um, immune system so that it won't uh, reject the kidney. So yeah. I'm get I'm guessing if you eat uh, a meal, they're not going to be as a, as effective to your immune system if you versus having an empty stomach, they're not going to be as uh, the toxicity level may not be the same if you have a, a a meal in your in your intestines. It just alters how much of the medication you're actually absorbing, mm -hmm. right? And so if if the 
the jig is to fool the body into believing that this new organ we've placed belongs. Mm -hmm. We want to get the most from the medications that are helping us with this con show, right? But if we're doing anything that could alter or get the body to have a clue that this doesn't belong here, Mm -hmm. If we're lucky, they can reverse it. But each time you go through that, it's a, it's a very traumatic event on the body. Um, and I know like at my center, they won't just keep treating you for reject uh, acute rejection over and over again because the long-term effects of exposing the body to such toxins are still not super clear. And so the key is to make sure that you're immune suppressed just enough for your body to never get a clue about what's going on as long as possible. Okay. Thank you for answering my question. Absolutely. Thank you guys. You're on mute. You're muted. I apologize. It's okay. Um, this is a quick question, but I uh, just want to know, do some of the anti-rejection medications interfere with one another? So it depends on the combination of meds you're on. As of right now, there usually are three, the three main ones, MMF, prednisone, and tacrolimus. They can be administered at the same time. Um, if you're having nauseousness, again, there are things where you can do things like taking the prednisone with meal and then waiting a bit and then taking the MMF with the tacrolimus. But as far as an actual interaction where they could hinder what we're hoping you to get from each of the agents, I am unaware of such interactions. I don't know if Dr. Gaff or Brokens know of any. No, there aren't any. All right. Um, okay. I have no more questions. Anybody else? All right. Moving on. Sally, that was wonderful. Thank you for the information. We really, really appreciate that. We're learning as we go. Okay. Last but not least, the nephrologist. Mrs. How you doing today? I know you've been waiting for so long and everything. So I know. Go ahead. Give it to us. Thanks for your patience. But this is so exciting, right? When when can we not only have the cardiologist talk about the role that the heart plays on the kidney? I mean, I'm always jealous during February that the heart just has its month and then we trail behind in March. So, but but we share, right? We share that connection. And then you have the pharmacist that's telling us about you know, whether it be drug interactions or, and especially her personal experience as um, a young person going through this with um, medication adherence. And then the nutritionist, and then most importantly, three men before us who have had transplants. Like this is just the best experience um, that I can say I've ever had. So thank you all. And um, thank you for sticking around <laughs> to listen to what I have to say. So. When I first heard about the conference and, um, you know, the big thing is prevention. And immediately I'm like, yes, 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 yes. Because prevention is key. I always tell anyone an ounce of prevention is worth 
a, is worth more than a pound of, of cure. Like preventing kidney disease is key, but I do know that you also have some viewers who are individuals with kidney disease. So I do want to kind of tap into the preventing CKD progression or slowing down CKD progression because that is a such thing. So starting out with just preventing CKD for individuals who do not already have the diagnosis, the most important thing is screening. I will say when I was in undergrad, um, I was pre-med and I had no interest in nephrology. Like I actually wanted to be a geriatrician. I love older people and I just wanted to be a geriatric doctor. But um, I volunteered with Donate Life and there was a young lady who was on her way to college in the same town as I was, and she had her screening test for her uh, softball scholarship. And it was then that she was diagnosed with kidney disease, but her disease was so severe, she was put on the transplant list shortly after. So not only was she not able to matriculate to play softball, but she lost her scholarship, therefore couldn't go to college. And she looked just like me. She was a young black female. And I said, well, how is this possible? Like, it just, it just didn't make sense to me. So that kind of piqued my interest into being more involved with Donate Life. And from there, I grew my passion um, in nephrology. So I will say one thing that I learned from her and that I see with new patients that I see, and, and I explained to them, it's such a silent disease that, you have to get screened because if it's not at that screening phase, the next phase is the listen to your body phase because your body is going to tell you something, you know, maybe a little thing that's off, but when your body is telling you something isn't right, listen and go see your primary care provider and get checked out. So the main two screening tests for kidney disease is a blood test and it's a urine test. So in the blood test, there's creatinine, and then in the urine, there's protein. There are people who can have protein in their urine and a normal creatinine. However, if that's your case, you still should be referred to see a nephrologist to figure out what's going on. Even though you may not be in the severe stage of CKD, you at least should have some sort of frequent monitoring and further evaluation of what's going on to delay the progression. Now for individuals who may not have protein in their urine yet, or maybe a small amount, which a small amount of protein is normal. That is a completely normal thing to have a small amount of protein in your urine. But if you have a small amount of protein in your urine, but your creatinine is elevated, most lab tests will flag 1.2 or one is abnormal. If it is elevated, then that's even more reason for you to be seen by a nephrologist. What I will say is we, in our kidney organization, um, we do strongly advise when you're at a level three, which means your percentage uh, is between, is less than 60%. Now, although the EGFR is not really a percentage, it's the best way that we can put it in layman's terms that it is a percentage because you can have an EGFR of 120. That doesn't mean it's 120%, but it's the best way that we can translate when communicating with our patients on what their current kidney function is. So definitely if you're at 
80% and let's say you were 90%, even if you're not sent to see a nephrologist, at least your primary care is aware that, hey, there's some sort of drop going on here. But risk factors do need to be discussed. And definitely, whether it be more discussion on nutrition, whether it be a more thorough review of your medication list, and I say family history reporting is also very key. But definitely once you hit 60%, you should be seen by a kidney specialist. One thing I will say, um, I'm, I'm wanting to add in a few new updates to the kidney world, especially since 2021. Um, I can say as of 2021, we have changed the way that we look at EGFR in the nephrology world when it comes to Blacks or African Americans. So when you take the creatinine from the blood, we take that value and we put it into a, an, into a calculator. That calculator, it depends on your age, your gender, and what used to be your race. As of 2021, we no longer are using that because what we have been aware of is that it does show um, a difference in your percentage depending on your race. And that can put certain individuals at a disadvantage. More importantly, a disadvantage of when they can get onto the transplant list. It also puts them at a disadvantage when it comes to um, medication dosing. And then it can also put them at a disadvantage when it comes to when they need to be seen by someone. So you can have, you know, I'll use a male, for example, you can have a black male and you can have a non-black male because that's generally how it's described. A black male and a non-black male, both with a creatinine of two, but the non-black male's GFR may be 30 and the black male's GFR may be 35 or something like that. And so, of course, that will affect how someone is treated, how someone is referred, and how someone is even um, referred for transplant. So that's one big thing that's different in the nephrology world when it comes to testing of the creatinine and screening. So the other thing that's important that I like to highlight, and I think it's not so much because I do telehealth and I do like to encourage um, at-home monitoring, but urine testing. One of the things that um, we do frequently with our patients who have what's called a vasculitis is test your urine at home. Because when you see your nephrologist, it may be every three months, depending on where you're at. Sometimes it could be every six months. But within that time period, there could have been a change in something that we missed. Because, because of the time lapse. And then not to mention, you know, what if there's an issue where you, where you had to reschedule the appointment? And so that just puts your testing back even further. I do like to show this when I do presentations. So it may say for professional use, but there are urine sticks that you can get over the counter. And the main important things for some patients to check would be the blood or the protein, depending on your condition. So if you were a patient of mine and your protein was always, say, in the light green area, and you notice between that next appointment with me, it changed, then we can intervene sooner than 
you know, how long it took for your next appointment. And this is something if, you know, you just do it once a week or not. I will like to say that in the very near future, there is a company that's working on a urine analysis and it will include a stick. You will put it into your smartphone and it will automatically bring out values that will then transport to your provider. So I can't wait on something like this to come forward because I am a strong proponent of at-home monitoring, at-home monitoring of your weight, at-home monitoring of your blood pressure. Uh, we even do remote patient monitoring in my clinic. So these are values that I can see daily and we can interact and intervene immediately because again, prevention is key. So the next thing, those are, those are going to be for the low, I like to say the low yield, those who are not previously diagnosed or for those who may be stage one and stage two, even kidney stone patients, they may, you know, they may not be levels three, four, five, but still knowing even if you are a stage two, it's making sure you have your frequent testing and controlling what your issue is, which is stone formation. So when it comes to individuals who are a CKD stage three, four, and five, and I always describe them as steps, always start out, say five is the fifth step, that's dialysis, that's the step everyone wants to avoid. So if you're at a three, then you can kind of get an understanding of where you are in association of five, or if you're at a four, then it kind of gets people a little bit more into shape quicker when they see, oh, you're just one step away. But when it comes to progressing of CKD, this is where, although like was mentioned earlier, you know, you may be a little rebellious to taking some of the meds because, you know, you're, you're, you're taking back your ownership. These are my kidneys. This is my body. Well, I will tell you as a nephrologist, I've always been in the mindset that your kidneys are my kidneys because I need you to realize this is how important it is to keep you off of dialysis. And I, I do have my feelings hurt sometimes when, when I feel like people aren't treating our kidneys right. But, and as has been stated over and over and over again, there are studies that tell us how these drugs work. So of course, in the beginning stages, we do want you to practice these, you know, great nutrition tips that were mentioned. We want you to practice prevention but when we're in the game and now it's, okay, we're here, we have to face this beast, we have to do what we can. And so in addition to the nutrition, the weight management, the fluid intake, but again, if your heart failure is progressing, those meds are prescribed for a reason. It's to control your heart failure because ultimately your kidneys will not be happy. Every time your heart pops, 25% of that blood goes to the kidney. So imagine, like he said, a heart that's only at an EF of 20%, instead of it squeezing strong, it's a weaker squeezing heart. And so therefore, imagine if the kidneys want 25% of blood, it's not going to get that. And that's when we get into those forward flow issues where he was describing uh, with the low pressure. So, um, so we're, in regards to CKD, someone already with CKD progressing, it's going to be making sure you adhere to these medications the best you can. But that also requires you to be your own advocate and to tell me what drugs is making you feel or to tell your nephrologist or your pharmacist or your nurse 
how these drugs are making or your nutritionist or your social worker, tell somebody how these drugs are making you feel. Because sometimes there are alternatives. Sometimes there are different formularies, like another new, there's another new thing that's come about to Crolimus. There's a once a day prescription. So there, there are new things coming down the pipeline. I've, I haven't been too excited the past few years. Everything has been the same in nephrology, but these past couple of years coming, there isn't so many new therapies, new modalities, um, you know, things that are coming down the pipeline. So definitely be your own advocate because when it comes to when you are currently in CKD and delaying that progression is important. When studies are done to look at these medicines, we're also able to see what the expected time that someone would progress. And this is important because the moment you hit that 20% mark, you need to be listed for a transplant. You need to undergo your evaluation because if you're not expected to progress from 20% to needing dialysis, say for another six or seven years, I mean, the average wait time for a transplant is about could be three at some centers, five at some centers. So the sooner the better to get listed for a transplant. Always say get listed at more than one center. But the sooner the better you get listed and you get a hold on your CKD at the level that you're at, then just maybe, you know, if you if you do start to come down those stairs, you, you may be able to get transplanted before uh, before the dialysis. I do, when I talk about um, nephrology and the causes with my patients, I tend to draw, but there are your kidneys. And then from your kidneys, which is where the urine is made, you have your ureters and it goes to your bladder and then out your urethra. So I always start at the bottom. So when, you, when, when we have to consider what are the causes of kidney disease, especially for men, prevention is get your prostate checked. Okay, because an enlarged prostate can lead to uh, urinary retention, which means your bladder may not empty like it should. And so all of that urine can eventually back up to your kidney. That will cause kidney disease. The good thing about that condition is if it's caught in a timely manner, which generally means a male listening to his body and saying, oh, it hurts down here, you know, and then he can get evaluated or doing his normal screenings if we can alleviate that pressure from the urine, your kidneys can very well go back to their normal level of function if that's where they've always been. But generally, if that's not um, treated in a timely manner, you can have scarring to the tissue of the kidney, which is not reversible, which means it doesn't matter if you get a catheter there to flush out the bladder, um, you have that chronic damage. And I always tell people, if your kidneys do not change in number after three months, that's called chronic damage. So the sooner, the better. Medications, the sooner, the better. We pull those away and we treat whatever um, side effects of the medicine or whatever issue you suffer from the medicine. Your kidneys can very well reverse back to uh, where they were, depending on the drug and depending on the timing. Next, after your bladder, of course, if you have any bladder masses, bladder uh, stones going up to the uh, ureters, kidney stones, managing those also help to prevent kidney disease. 
UTIs in women. Frequent UTIs, managing those helps to prevent kidney disease because every time you have a roaring infection and we have to give you an antibiotic, that's a risk of damage to the tissue of the kidney. And you could eventually develop kidney disease. Um, also, some people can be born. Uh, I, I think it was mentioned that, um, and I'm sorry, I cannot see this bar. Sally, yes, yeah. Sally, that uh, you, I think it was stated that yours was more just the malformation of your kidneys. Well, that can happen with, um, you know, I remember a young boy, he was in his mid 20s. And he was coming up on his fourth transplant at Vanderbilt. But as a child, he, he always had issues with the structure of his ureters. So those generally are diagnosed at a younger age. Um, but that's also a condition that when it's diagnosed, prevent, preventing kidney disease by having that surgically, um, surgically treated. And then, of course, when you get into the kidney. I mean, it's a field of nephrology for a reason. There's over like 30 causes. So the best way I can break it down when top two causes of kidney disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, we've had some great presenters comment on those already. So I will not belabor how to prevent and manage those. Uh, besides, I will add on new therapies. So for, um, for high blood pressure, we have seen that um, there's a class of a, it's a class of a drug we already use, but it's, I like to describe it as a cousin, but um, finerenone. So we, we've seen studies that show when you take this therapy and let's say you are also diabetic with kidney disease, it reduces heart attacks, strokes, and progression of kidney disease. We already know this about ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, losartan, valsartan, those drugs. But these are studies that have been done in the past, and we have newer studies that show if you take these drugs, they can help your kidneys last twice as long, some of them. They can help slow down. We're not saying it's going to cure the kidney disease, but if you're normally going to drop like this on your curve, it'll flatten it out a little bit, and your kidney disease will not progress as quickly. But there are new therapies that we are offering for patients who have kidney disease and diabetes to help. Um, so the third top cause of kidney disease is going to be what we call glomerular diseases. And so these are like vasculitis, like I mentioned earlier, which pretty much means, so the glomerulus inside the kidney it's just imagine a yarn ball of blood vessels. That's where all the filtering takes place. So it's just a yarn ball of blood vessels. Well, those blood vessels can be uh, damaged and lead to kidney disease. That's when we pull out the big guns, right? That's when we definitely need our pharmacists to help us, you know, especially like inpatient with dosing and um, administering these medications. But these are conditions but again, if you're diagnosed with this, you're taking your therapies at home, you can dip your urine once a week. You can dip your urine every other day to see, is my blood back? Because if my blood is back, because you don't always see blood in your urine. And some of the times when we decide to restart therapy, it's not always because we saw physically blood in the urine. It's because there was blood on the dipstick. 
our lupus patients, there was a new um, set of blood on the dipstick. There was more protein on the dipstick. All these are things that by just having this little strip at home, you know, you may be able to catch things sooner than we can at a twice a year visit or even a three times a year visit. Uh, the other thing that I would like to mention was technologies. So some things that we are, some things that we've noticed in the nephrology world, not quite there yet, but when it comes to dialysis, we have some new modalities coming down the pipeline, meaning not only a good thing for patients on dialysis, but for transplant patients. So there is this artificial kidney which has kind of made it past one step, which is good, you know, so the more steps, you know, it can come down the pipeline and we'll, it'll get ready for human testing, but it's going to be almost like a pacemaker that goes here in the chest to control the rate of the heart, but it will be implanted inside the body and it will do the job of the kidneys. And not only, um, so it's done out of UCSF. There's a physician and a scientist over at UCSF, UCSF, and my former attending, Dr. Bill Fussell at Vanderbilt, they've joined together. He's, he has an engineering background, so he's been working on this for, for the longest. But they've been able to progress in the steps of this um, device to where um, they're getting better response with the filtering aspect of it. And so what it would do is it would be implanted in your body. It would take the job of your kidneys. You will not need dialysis. And they're also considering it as an alternative to transplant because then you won't need to go through the whole immunosuppressant route. So I don't know, you know, in which population they would use it first, but I know it's always been announced as being a replacement for dialysis to bridge you to the transplant. Now, there already exists what's called a WAK, which is a wearable artificial kidney. It's almost like a tool belt. They, I want to say, um, and I, I was, was able to have a lecture by him as well. I want to say they are in human trials with that to where they are allowing individuals to test this out. So pretty much it's like a little tool belt you wear it. It weighs, I'm not going to say a couple of pounds, but it weighs some pounds. Um, and the other thing, like Philip has mentioned, I think he does peritoneal dialysis. There is a huge push to peritoneal dialysis because not only um, do patients with, or at least the studies have shown that we've seen, they require less medical therapy versus individuals that are on conventional or the in-center hemodialysis, but they tend to just be able to be more independent because this is something that's generally done at night while they're sleeping. So if they, you know, they're still able to have their day. Now on the dialysis side, of course, there is the nocturnal dialysis and the home dialysis. So I say all that to say, you know, there has been more of um, a universal push towards peritoneal dialysis and home dialysis. I've always been a bigger proponent for um, for home dialysis just because, I mean, you can just, not only from the studies, but you can just see it, you know, in the patient's labs. You can see the outcomes of my patients that are on the other side of the door and in center versus my patients are on this side of the door in the home dialysis unit. 
Uh, one thing Philip did mention, which I will say is kind of falling out of practice, was where he said he was ready to start dialysis, but they told him that um, his PD catheter would not be ready in time. Let me tell you what COVID has done. COVID has pushed those who didn't believe it or practice it to realize that you can start peritoneal dialysis right away. It's just, it's a different process, but you can do peritoneal dialysis right away. And the reason why COVID pushed us towards this is because we started having a limitation on our in-center dialysis. We started having um, less resources, whether it was staffing, whether it was when we had COVID patients, some facilities couldn't really adapt to um, accommodating those with COVID, those without COVID. So there was a big push to, you know, whether it be spacing out the timing of dialysis, doing it less frequently, but there was a big push to doing um, immediate PD start or urgent PD start is what we call it. You just, you just change up, you change up the fluid and how you administer it a little bit differently. But I think that is going to leave a lasting impression on certain nephrologists who were a little hesitant to do it, to realize that, um, that you can do it. And for me as a nephrologist who focuses on rural areas, you know, it's definitely big for me to, um, to educate and to get people to do more home dialysis because that trek to, to the next town to get dialysis can be, can be kind of taxing on those that are in smaller towns, especially I like my patients here in Georgia. So um, I would like to say, again, key things for before you get to dialysis is screening, listen to your body, be your own advocate. And um, not before you get to dialysis, but before you even get to the diagnosis of CKD. But for those who are diagnosed with CKD, realize that, you know, as much as you may have tried your hardest or you may have not tried your hardest in those earliest stages, it's still never too late. Don't ever think anything is too late. Even if you are on dialysis and you're waiting on a transplant, it's still never too late. Right. Okay. I always say don't give up hope. Um, don't lose your faith. And I don't care what process you are, whether you're on your fifth transplant or whether you're waiting on your first transplant, this disease does not define you. Um, just listen to your body. And if, if you don't have confidence in who, who's a part of your team. Again, like Sally said, we are a team. You are the quarterback. I only make suggestions. You know, I can't force this pill down your mouth. I only make suggestions. But if you don't have confidence in your team, you need to find you a new team. Find you someone that you're confident in. But um, you definitely are the star player. And if you, if you don't do what you can for our kidneys, then I can't do my job. So, all right. I will stop there. Dr. Brookins, you knocked it out the park. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank you. That. <laughs> that was oh, awesome. wait, wait. And I want to tell Dr. Geff, I live in Georgia, but I am Boston Red Sox. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I was so inspired. Oh. That, that just took you down a knot. No, so first of all, Dr. Brookins, I, I just wanted to apologize. Um, I wanted to apologize that I had to Leave, I had to leave my building. They were kicking us out. So I, I had to turn off and try to get back on. But my phone wasn't connecting that easily. But I, I think I got most of it. That was amazing. That was really fantastic. 
Um, I actually have a question for you, if I may. Go and ahead. Also, just a comment to hey, Sally. Really? I apologize. I also have, have to run soon. But uh, for, first, actually, just a comment to Sally. You know, when I always I always feel bad telling my patients to do things or take things that I've never taken. You know, I mean, I don't know what it's like to take Lasix. I don't know what it's like to take a blood pressure medicine. Um, but for you, I can just I can't even imagine to to be talking to patients and guiding them through something that you've gone through yourself. And these are not simple medications either. Right. Um, it must be quite amazing to do that, and to you know for them to really to have faith in you because you know what you're talking about on a personal level. Um, but Dr. Brooken, um, I wanted to just ask uh, a medical question: Do you, uh, in patients that have heart failure, uh, not not only because of kidney disease itself, but in patients who truly have, let's say, a low ejection fraction or a weak, weaker heart, do you find that peritoneal dialysis versus hemodialysis, one or the other, is actually easier to manage them or or it's hit or miss? Because I have found some people that do better with peritoneal, some people better with HD. What do you think? Uh, no, great question. And not only for heart failure patients, but even liver failure patients. Peritoneal dialysis is going to be the the reason why those patients can also tend to do better is because at that point we really need to control their volume, and it's a lot. It, it well, let me not say it's a lot easier, but it can sometimes be easier to manage your volume when you're doing dialysis daily. So if not peritoneal dialysis, I definitely like nocturnal dialysis because and it, and the other difference is. It's slower and it's gentler, mm. right? So remember earlier how um, Tip Tip Tripper Mythical was saying about his fistula, right? And we know we have those <laughs> high, we have those high output uh, fistulas, but and because dialysis is running, you said your rate was almost six hundred. But if you put someone on nocturnal, that rate slows down and it's much longer over time, and it's a more gentler form of dialysis which of course, you know, PD is going to be along those lines. So I would definitely say when it comes to liver patients, PD is good because you can also help with that ascites. But for heart failure patients, nocturnal dialysis is definitely, if not PD, definitely nocturnal dialysis. Great. Thank Great. you for that. We appreciate it. I apologize. I have to run, but thank you so much, guys, for having me. This was really... Uh, thank you, Dr. Yeah. Dr. Thank Gibb, you. we thank, thank you so you. much for having you. We appreciate you. all the information you gave us and everything. Thank you. thank you. Take care. All right. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Boykins, I, I have, um, you know me, I'm asking questions, but um, I just want to go back to a question that's out there in the ether. Everybody's been talking about this, and we get so much information on this. Some people are ad adamant about yes, some say no, but the question is really basic, but is it possible to cure kidney disease? I know that's a big question, but let's hear you what you have to say about this. I will say <clears throat> cure is a strong word. Again, if someone has had a change in their creatinine for over three months, you're now technically CKD. If it's less than three months, then you're in what we call an AKI, which means it's just an acute change of the kidney function. So if I can figure out what caused that acute change 
and I can fix it, remove it, remove whatever it was, a medication, or we can fix um, whether it was someone having AFib, you know, atrial fibrillation with their heart beating all over the place and we can control their rate. Whatever it is, if you can fix that, there is a chance of that kidney function going back to 80% where it was. I have a guy who, um, you know, I like to show his numbers. He's probably one of my more recent drastic ones. But normal kidney function, normally 57, 60, dropped all the way to nine. Mm. But in four days, it started picking back up. So it's not a cure because he's still at, he's back to 60, never needed dialysis. It's not a cure because he's not to 100 or before where he was before. But again, his kidney function changed drastically, but it was less than three months. So whatever that damage, whatever that issue was, hadn't damaged that tissue within the kidney yet. But again, if you don't address it when it needs to be addressed, the tissue will get damaged. And then by the time it's recognized, instead of us being able to take you back from nine to 60, you know, maybe we only can recover that, get you back to 20. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, you know what I forgot to mention for the transplant people? Um, and I don't know if any of you have experienced it yet, but generally when the transplant starts to dive in the wrong direction, we do biopsies. Well, we're now starting to use um, these other, we're starting to use genetic therapy. We're starting to use like genetic testing in which we can, you, you've had that? Okay. I just, I just went on Wednesday. They switched me from MMF to Imiran and she wants to get DSA and some new genetic testing before deciding to do a biopsy. So I will say because it is still maybe two years, three years of use, some we are still combining both right so where if we do the test just to make sure we're not missing anything we may do a biopsy but this test is going to be promising because it can prevent you from needing a biopsy mm -hmm. yeah thank you for that we appreciate it I, I, i'm gonna take a question from somebody who's watching this is wendy's question and she goes and this is for dr uh brookins uh she says, how has peritoneal dialysis improved since 1981? And that's mm -hmm. a great question. I was on peritoneal for six and a half years, and I did a hemo for five and a half. So uh, yeah. answer that question. That's a good one. Well, I'll, I'll go back to um, what I was saying earlier about Mr. Phillip is that we are embracing urgent start, number one. So that means no one has to be delayed or told that they cannot do peritoneal dialysis because they need dialysis right away and we just can't start it for them. So one of the one of the positives in peritoneal dialysis is that we more people are getting comfortable with doing urgent PD starts. Now as far as since 1981, I will say, you know, I don't know exactly how peritoneal dialysis was then but i will say um you know there are different therapies i'm not sure if icodextrin I'm, I'm not sure if if um you know if ico was a, a formula that was used back then 
but it is a newer formula besides your red, your yellow, your green bags. You have your purple bags that we're right. using to help. Um, I will say only from personal experience, I was able to see, treat, and diagnose a gentleman who had a condition, the, um, the sclerosing condition, it's short for EPS, but pretty much where you can have damage to the lining. The longer you're on peritoneal dialysis, the higher your risk of developing this condition, which will ultimately, ultimately make your function fail but we have gotten better at diagnosing it and put, and treating it. So when it comes to the complications of PD, I will say things have definitely improved, whether it be um, antibiotics, whether it be those diagnosings and um, management of like EPS. Um, and I will say at one point there probably was more stricter guidelines of who could be on PD. But again, you know, it's one of those things, once people become more familiar with it, like there are nephrologists who, you know, and sadly to say, and we know this in the nephrology world because it's all up and down our studies and our newsletters, is that a lot of patients are not prescribed peritoneal dialysis because their nephrologist is not comfortable with prescribing peritoneal dialysis. So I could only hope since 81 that there's been more training. I know the center where I train, we had a large, we have one of what will be considered a large peritoneal dialysis population. So for me and my colleagues who train together, we feel, you know, quite comfortable with it. But you do have some nephrologists who just aren't that comfortable with, with PD to prescribe it. And therefore, again, if that patient doesn't know anything about it, you know, they may not ask and inquire about it. Yeah. So I don't know um, if that was a helpful answer. Maybe if she has anything in particular, like specifics, uh, I could address I that. I think that was a great answer. I think that was a great answer. But Jonathan has a question right now. Go ahead, Jonathan. Uh, well, uh, first of all, I wanted to say, uh, Dr. Uh, Brookins, you did an amazing job. And uh, mm -hmm. I enjoyed everything you said. I'm a huge advocate with uh, for a preemptive transplant, and I definitely believe that uh, you should try to get on that list and push yourself to uh, get there as soon as you can. Why, why stick around and wait for dialysis to come before, uh, you know, you have to get on the list? Uh, I know a lot of nephrologists, uh, you know, some, some don't feel that way, but uh, some sort of push patients, it seems like, toward the uh, dialysis. But, uh, but with that being said, uh my my question actually is is you know you'd already brought up uh you know talking about uh different different factors and things like that and uh different types of ways that you can uh, develop kidney disease and of course you know we know that uh chronic kidney disease the top leading causes are type 2 diabetes and hypertension or or diabetes not just type 2 but type 1 as well but um, my question is, is what, what disease do you see more commonly that is affecting people and causing uh, kidney disease? Outside of, uh, thank you for that question. Outside of diabetes and high blood pressure, definitely, oh, I don't know, I'm hearing an echo, but definitely it's going to be heart failure. And within, I will say within a certain race, I'm seeing a lot of FSGS. So that's a really, that's yeah. a short name for a really super long word. Right. Um, 
But yeah. FSGS is something mm-hmm. that we are or that I have experienced with in a certain population. And I mean, there's not many PKD, uh, but definitely heart failure and um, FSGS. Yeah, yeah. the, the FSGS is uh, getting more and more common and it seems to progress, uh, you know, more, more quickly now. Um, and so, you know, with uh, P- PKD is more of a, a, a disease, disease that seems like it's more of a hereditary uh, where a lot of people get that passed down to them. You know, a lot of a lot of their family members. I know a lot of patients that are PKD patients that uh, like their mom had it, their dad had it or their uncle, brother, cousins, you know, and it seems like it's sort of DNA related. But. Um, but yeah, FS, FSDS is a, is a strong one. We're getting a really bad back feed from somewhere. Two points. PKD is genetic, but there's also a, there's also a percentage of PKD that's not genetic. Mm-hmm. And FSGS, there's a component that's genetic. Okay. And, and that was one of the things I think I forgot to mention is have conversations amongst your family about why you have the kidney disease because there um with fsgs we've seen a link with african americans and the gene is apol1 yeah so it's kind of like apol1 functions very similar to sickle cell disease where it was an issue that helps survival from an infection in endemic areas of africa so it was just through, you know, this natural um, evolution. Yeah. I think. But what we have seen is that it can be much rapidly goes to failure. Yeah. I, I think the, the scary thing about FSGS is that it can come back, uh, you know, even with the transplant, and it can come back quickly uh, from what yes. I've, I've heard. So. It's, it's one of the, if, if we had to rate three diseases that come back very quickly in a transplant, FSGS is one. Yep. And again, it's one of those things where, you know, I have FSGS patients where their urine doesn't look bubbly yeah. to them, right? But they have a ton of protein. So yep. imagine if your urine may not look bubbly, but if you dip that stick at home, and you see that you've gone from being this light green to this dark green. Okay, I need to call Dr. Dorkin to get my urine checked tomorrow. Right. And there's a treatment for that. So the sooner we can diagnose it, the sooner we can treat it. Yeah. One of my uh, advocate friends is a 34-year transplant recipient, and he had FSGS. And uh, he was always, he said early on, he had his transplant in the 80s. And so early on, he was really scared. Like every time he did blood work, like he was living fear of, oh man, you know, that FSGS is going to come back. And it never did, you know, yeah. uh, but he, he got his transplant directly from his brother. And uh, as you know, you know, uh, the statistics do show that if you can get uh, a family member uh, closely, you know, related, uh, your kidney, you know, can last uh, a little, you know, longer. Uh, than than a deceased donor. Not to say that a deceased donor can't last for a long time, because it can. But um, he, I think that's probably what happened for him. Because, like I say, he's thirty four year transplant recipient with FSGS. So, Jonathan, well, that's, that's awesome. But I'm gonna tell you, uh, my first transplant was with my from my sister, and 
I have FSGS is what where, where my uh, failure came from. And yeah, doctor said when mine came back in my first transplant, maybe my sister might have had a little bit of it, and that's why oh. they did not want me to get another one from my, uh, like from- any of my living family because they oh. might have had a trace. And that's there you go. That's what happened with me. So wow. there was a publication maybe two months ago on the same topic, specifically African-Americans getting a living donor from a sibling, because now we are getting more information about APOL1. And the question is, well, what if you get it from your brother who may be just a carrier, right? Mm-hmm. Or your brother who may not know. And now you have this, um, this new kidney that's still APOL1. So, I mean, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't shone away from accepting a living, a living related donor as a minority or as an African American person, but it, it is something that we are aware of. And now the question is going to be, are the transplant centers going to start testing for that? Because right now it's not a requirement, but again, it could hurt a certain population to. if we right. start checking for that. Right. Yeah. My husband was turned down at Hopkins because of it. <laughs> Wait, what happened? At Hopkins, my husband went through all the testing and then they were like, oh, there's a genetic testing we want you to do. And he Oh, went, no. Yeah. So he, because he had that, he couldn't be your donor? Well, he had that. They, they had reservations about it. Well, and not only for the sake of you receiving his kidney, but also what could happen to him with right. one remaining kidney down the road. That's right. essentially what, because he was ready to whatever, but they were like, it's just that they feel irresponsible now that they covered it. And now that we know about it, I know about yeah. it, encouraging him being um, a donor. And April, and April L1 is one of those genes where we call it a two hit factor, meaning you can have the gene and something you know, environmental can happen, let's just say environmental, not sure. And you could be fine, but you can have a hit maybe the second time and it just roars whatever organ it's going to affect, which we know it can affect the kidneys. It also can affect the heart too. Um, I wanna say in heart studies, it's more linked to hypertension. Um, But I have a guy, he's in his thirties. His GFR was around um, he was around like maybe 20s and when he caught COVID we're ready we're, we're getting on the transplant list and so since the pandemic we've just been submitting samples and submitting samples and in the beginning you know some samples that were submitted we thought that we could see the virus particles in the kidney tissue but studies later on with more samples as they started getting um, submitted, we can't see the virus present, but what it's doing is it's affecting the tubules within the kidney. Right. And a lot of people who have FSGS with COVID, a lot of them were progressing onto dialysis and not coming back, like back to their normal. And then there were some people who didn't have FSGS, got COVID, and they weren't really impacted as much, but it was definitely something that we know. If you have FSGS, APOL1 related, and you got COVID, there's a strong chance that you could have very well progressed. 
Yeah. Good. So it looks like they are testing more frequently. And some centers, again, centers centers can make their rules sometimes. So some centers can say, we don't want to test for it, and some centers can choose to. We wanted to do a second opinion, but then I got a call. Oh, we congratulations. To, we to for a second opinion because, you know, we were upset about it, but then we got a call, so that took care of that. It was a blessing. It was meant to be. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, and um, I, I think I have the last question. What was it, Jonathan? No, oh, go ahead, Phil. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Phil. It's fine. No problem. So, um, my question, because you touched on, you touched on how, you know, basically adults can monitor their health and, and noticing signs and things of that nature. What can parents do for their kids? Uh, what can they look for um, in certain situations? Because And this is important to me because I got diagnosed at four. Um, but by the time they figured it out, I was already looking like Pillsbury Doughboy and walking around all swollen. So it was it was kind of too late for me at that point. Um, by the time they did the biopsy, they'd already said, you know, he's going into, uh, you know, renal failure. And, you know, from that point, I was only at 30 percent till I uh, got on the list. So specific things that parents can and their kids uh it's uh, urine, urine output, uh, you know, swelling, things of that nature. Like, what can they look for to be able to say, okay, I need to take my kid to a nephrologist or just to the doctor? And right. That's a great question. And actually, um, I kind of, you know, thought about you being diagnosed young. I will say what is, what is unfortunate about pediatric versus adults, you know, when most adults, when we go to our primary care doctor, because we, if we have high blood pressure, you know, we're screened for kidney disease, or if we have diabetes, we're screened for kidney disease, or just generally just having, it's a part of basic, it's a part of the basic blood work. You know, you may not always get your urine test. If you don't have those risk factors of high blood pressure, diabetes, you may not get your urine check, but you're going to get the basic blood test. And when it comes to pediatric care, whether or not um, they're doing the basic blood test, they may not do it that often because I just took my two-year-old and the only test that she got in over six months was her hemoglobin check. So it doesn't, you know, checking for creatinine is not something routine that's done for a child at every visit and definitely not the urine. So when it comes to a parent and their child, what's going to be important is going to be the signs, or excuse me, going to be those symptoms. So how many wet diapers are they making? Are you concerned with them making less wet diapers or more wet diapers? Does their urine, does, does the diaper, is there anything different about the appearance of the urine in the diaper, whether it's darker versus, you know, just the pale color? And also, like you mentioned, if you're starting to look like Pillsbury Doughboy, I want to say there was this mom I followed on YouTube and, you know, she was enjoying her her infant daughter. And then when she hit like two years old, she's sharing the story with us about how her daughter just 
started swelling up for a reason, for, for no reason that she didn't know. So I think the moment you, um, you know, once a parent sees these unusual signs, uh, to definitely um, go to the doctor and say, hey, there's something unusual here um, that I would, that I think my child needs to be looked at. Because again, they don't check creatinine um, routinely in pediatric cases. Now, when it comes to genetic testing, you know, the main thing that kids get are going to be cystic fibrosis and sickle cell, but they're not getting, you know, the gamut of PKD. They're not getting the APOL1. They're not getting any other um, genetic conditions that we see within, um, within the kidney world. But what's also important is going to be to understand their health conditions, too. So whether it be if they know that, you know, they had kidney problems or the dad had kidney problems, mom had kidney problems, understanding that. But the, my key advice for that is going to be just understanding and knowing when something is off about your child, you just got to kick in the mama bear, mama, papa bear right. role and say, this needs to be looked at. Right. But kids can generally... Um, for us, pediatric kids, we put them on uh, peritoneal dialysis, and we also know that kids are, you know, kids can be quickly transplanted from their parents, you know, as, as long as the parent is fine in their kidney function, you know, that they, they get trans, they can get transplanted from their living parent um, quicker. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate that very much. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Cook. It's all yours, sir. Hey, everybody! It was it was great. Sally, Kelsey, Doctor Boykins, Doctor uh, Geft. We appreciate all your information. Brookings, Brookings, sorry. And we we appreciate all your information. We appreciate everything you guys done. This was a wonderful thing. And now, Phil, I'm gonna give it to you because we have a special trailer, right? Yes, yes, sir. Um, so the host that we were supposed to have, uh, Erica Nickley, couldn't join us today uh, because she had some personal things that she had to deal with. And uh, we won't let Erica know that we're thinking of her. Uh, we appreciate her even uh, saying yes to, to doing this for us when we asked her. Um, so uh, the trailer I'm going to show to you today is actually um, a documentary that Erica has done herself in uh, finishing stages of production now. Um, it is called Let There Be Life. Um, and she's, I, I've watched the trailer already and she's done an amazing job so far. So um, she decided to do something, uh, a documentary for organ donation to prove how important it is. So she followed three people around that are uh, I believe on dialysis and looking for transplants. And so um, she asked us to show this trailer for her and we were happy to do it. I mean, she supported us from from day one. Uh, the three of us, myself, Mr. Cook, and Mr. Trailer have all been on her show, Let There Be Life on Instagram. She's been on the second chance of me and tomorrow um, in the past. And, you know, we, we definitely had uh, no problem with saying yes to showing this for her. So uh, just give me a second. We'll bring it up here.
Can y'all see it? Yeah.
Glad to see me back there the night, cause they know how much what I do means to me and who I am. You know, it's just me. To fight you all, here we come home with mama. That, that definitely looked interesting. I can't wait for that uh, documentary to. Yeah, that, that that's gonna be awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Even though it was echoing a little bit, I really got the the <clears throat> the meat and potatoes of what it's what's it about. And that that disparity right there is big, especially some of the myths that uh, we have to you know poke holes in because some of that stuff blows me away. And 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 I hey, I've been going through this since I since I was 18 years old and. Uh, talk to a lot of people and I hear these things and I'm always trying to correct them as best possible. So seeing a, yeah. a movie that's going to be like this, a documentary rather, will be really eye opening and it needs to get to the right communities for sure. Absolutely. So we can uh, get more people transplanted there for sure. Absolutely. Yep. And the fact that you can live with life with one kidney. So, so many people are, are so uh, misinformed about that. They're, I don't know how many times I talk to people and they, they would tell me if I give you my kidney, then something will happen to me and I'm going to die or I'll get sick. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. You can live life with one kidney right. and live good and lift and thrive. Right. 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 Okay. Everybody. Thank you so much again. Thank you for all the presenters. Thank you for all the collab. This was a lot of work, but it was great. And our goal is just to keep on moving the needle for 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 patients with kidney disease and we thank you so much and again this was really really good and i'm i'm happy it, it went off without a hitch even though i was messing up a little bit erica could have erica was definitely a better host than me because i'm not used to hosting so it was thrown to me like can you host I was like, yeah okay but um, it went off good and i think it went off good with the professionals we got dr brookins dr Geff. Sally, y'all did y'all's thing, and Kelsey with her video. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And uh, yeah. thank you again. I'm out. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> See y'all next time. Yes. Hey, Shell. I was going to say hi to Shell. I see her in there. Thanks again, everybody. Take care. God bless. Everybody have a good night. <laughs>